This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Whatever you've got on this weekend, don't miss a moment in the world of sport. Wherever you are around the country, we've got you covered. This is SENZ. Good afternoon to you. It's just gone one o'clock. Uh, a theme from Rocky, was, which was always about the underdogs. Well, today was an underdog day for at least uh, one of the matches uh, in the FIFA World Cup. Stephen McIver, Ben Francis with you all the way through till five this afternoon. We're going to talk to uh, New Zealand cruiserweight, mandatory challenger for the WBO cruiserweight title, David Light, in just a moment. Is he an underdog? We'll, we'll talk to him about that in just a moment. But just a quick reminder, the underdogs over the weekend in the quarterfinals of the FIFA World Cup. Croatia beating favourites, if you thought Brazil were the favourites, 4-2 in penalties after one all at full time. Argentina not an underdog, beating the Netherlands 4-3 on penalties, 2-2 at full time. Biggest underdog of all, Morocco beating Portugal 1-0 this morning and France not an underdog, beating England 2-1. I'm sure you all feel, if you're an English supporter, for Harry Kane. Equals Wayne Rick, Rooney's record of 53 goals for England at international level. Can't get the second penalty away. If you've got thoughts on England particularly, since it sometimes seems it's a, a topic of discussion, you know, well, it's not going home anymore. Uh, feel free to call on 0800 150811. That's 0800 150811. Or the Temper Bedpost text line on 8833. Also this afternoon from 2 o'clock, tennis coach Brad Stein on the influence of the late Nick Bolateri, who passed away this time last week at age of 91. This is a guy, by the way, who coached Jim Courier to four majors and number one in the world. So he knows what he's talking about. We'll hear from Marcus Armstrong, Glenn Ashby, golfer Ryan Fox, also the gem of sport for the Tour Tara Dal Budge after three o'clock this afternoon and bring you some highlights of the FIFA World Cup. So it's a busy old afternoon, but I'd like you to be involved as well. 0800 150811 or the Temper Bedpost text line on double eight double three. Okay, David Light. Third fight of the year was a big one. Uh, fights Brandon Glanton in Florida last week over 10 rounds. Gets it on a split decision. David Light is now 20-0 and 0 and the mandatory challenger for Lawrence Oakley's WBO Cruiserweight title. And he joins us right now. Hey, buddy, how are you? Hey, good, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Mate, thank, I know Sunday's a good day for you and it's a, a day off, but I appreciate you giving us the time. So when you're standing in the middle and waiting for the judges' decisions after a brutal 10 rounds, what was going through your head? Oh, I was just preparing for the worst. You know, I knew I was in his, um, his backyard and, you know, I knew it was a close fight and, that, you know, just preparing for it to just go horribly. So, But I knew I'd fought well as best as I could, so I was happy with what I'd done. Now, that was a slip. It wasn't a knockdown, despite it being called a knockdown, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. He completely missed. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 knowing that you got to count on that one, right? Knowing that you, when you got to waiting for the the judges result, was that the one thing sitting in the back of your mind? Well, yeah, my coach Isaac Peachy told me, you know, I needed to finish the fight hard and I needed to finish it well. Um, so I was pretty much pretty sure I was going to lose that round. Um, but you know, it was, um, a knockdown doesn't really mean too much. It's it's basically like a tiebreaker, like if yeah. we're tied on the rounds five all, then he wins. But you know, I knew that I wasn't going to be satisfied with a five round all anyway. So. I just didn't let it get to me. David, I read in the post-fight interviews that you were going with a, a bully tactic. How? Why? Well, I knew that he's a bully, and um, bullies don't, aren't used to getting bullied themselves, so it's um, something that often kind of shocks them when someone stays with them and, and pushes back on them. And, um, yeah, I think it worked. Uh, so it was a great, good tactic. <laughs> I mean, how were you feeling about that? I, I saw some of this. I, I, I'll admit I only saw some of the highlights of the of the fight, but there was a, a, you were both throwing some incredibly big uppercuts and all were connecting. You were receiving, he was receiving. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the most uppercuts that I've ever seen landed in a fight. Um, <laughs> not a lot of jabs, not a lot of... Um, you know, the conventional boxing, just, yeah, but that's what it had to be because he wanted it to be in a phone booth. He was pushing his head right into me, and, and I couldn't let him push me back, so I stood there, and because he had his head down, he just opened himself up to that shot. When you look at fights that you have had, you're 20-0 now. Was it arguably the toughest fight so far? Yeah, I think it probably was. Um, I fought the number one Mexican. He was the number one American. The number one Mexican was pretty tough too. He um, he surprised me and caught me early and I had to recover. But yeah, it was just a battle of attrition. I think that my last fight was the hardest one I've had. So how do you get to this point? I mean, I, we know Isaac and Peach Boxing now have probably uh, one of the best stables, if not the best boxing stable in the country. What is it about the way Isaac and the crew train you that, that is making the difference for you? Ah, oh, man, you know, I think it's all a little bit of magic, so if I knew exactly what it was... <laughs> don't, uh, don't tell him. Don't but, tell him he's a magician, mate. We'll never hear the end of it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think he just... He puts in the effort, man, like he's... Um, you know, if he needs to take time off work or, you know, and he has a plumbing business or whatever he needs to do for us to get us the W, he's going to do it, so... I had guys coming up and we were going and just doing, ah, man, I must have done like 300 rounds of sparring, you know, in the in the weeks coming up to this fight. So I was definitely the most prepared that I could have been sparring-wise. Um, who, and I think who, that's just what the key, what it, what it is. He just does the prep that we need to do. Who were you sparring? Uh, <laughs> sparring Toa Lutelli. He's a good heavyweight. Oh, out of um, he fought, just fought um, Justice Huni over there and did, went really well. I think he... Um, he probably, if the judges had been fair, if the ref had been fair, would have scored his, um, his only knockdown that um, Justice Huni's ever suffered in mm-hmm. his career. And um, I've also been sparring uh, AJ, a guy, AJ, some of the top uh, Samoan and like New Zealand heavyweights in the country in the amateur level. Um, I think there wasn't anyone that I sparred that was under like 110 kilos. So, <laughs> it was pretty tough. <laughs> and, and when you go, and when you go into that camp, knowing you're going to have bombs thrown at you and big, heavy-handed yeah. bombs, is this just part of the routine for you, or do you, or is there a sense sometimes going, oh, here we go again? Do I really have to do this? Oh yeah, man! Like driving and 
going to sparring every day was just like, man, you know, you get those those um, pre-fight nerves that you usually get because, like, you're, you're pretty sure anything can happen and you can get hit with that one shot that puts you down. But that's what I needed. I got used to getting that feeling. And so by the time I came to a fight, I was just – I was – cool as a cucumber. <laughs> yeah, no, I think there's, is it Manny Pacquiao that once said, you know, if you, and this is a cliche, but I think it's it's in my boxing gym, it's, it's like, you know, train train like you're going to fight, then the fight becomes easy. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's what we were doing, we were telling these guys to, you know, they were doing one round in, one round out for 10 rounds, and we said, don't take it easy on me, you know, get in there and take my head off, so they were pushing me around, uh, pushing me into the ropes, uh, really trying to bash me, and uh, yeah, so it was, it was a fight. You know, I was fighting like twice a week or almost every day when Kiki was up um, for weeks leading up to the fight. So, you know, I was just, when it, times got tough, I remembered those times in the in the gym sparring those boys and, and that really got me through it. At what point during the camp does it become, okay, I get this. When, when does the pain pain of being bashed up stop? <laughs> or does it, or it, does it continue? Yeah, it continues. People sort of think that you like getting hit after a while. Like no one likes getting hit. <laughs> you never, you never grow to learn to like getting hit. But um, you know, you you know that it's going to count um, towards the fight. So you're happy with it. <laughs> does Does Isaac play a play a role of of knowing when to to call them back a little bit to to stop punishing you, or is he says, or is he the type of guy? And I suspect he might be. Just just go all in. Yeah, he um, he's not one to try and let you off. He's one to tell you to dig deeper and and go those places that where you don't want to go um, to find that to rediscover you know what you're really truly capable of. That's that's his. So, so he he doesn't he doesn't let you off. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> no, no, I can imagine that. I, I find the rela- I, I'm intrigued about the relationship between you and Isaac, right? You're a nice, you know. You're yeah. an, you're a, you're an understated white boy, right? I don't I don't see <laughs> I don't I don't see any tats on you. And then you've got uh, Isaac uh, Plummer. He's got a, co- a language more colourful than most brothels, uh, and and which I've talked to him a lot about, and he understands where I'm coming from. But I'd love to know what, how how the relationship works. <laughs> oh man, I don't know. Like you know. But how different we are and stuff. We see the world a lot the same way. We have real deep chats about, you know, what it is to be a good fighter and all that, and we agree on all that. So I think it's the things that count. That, um, you know, we obviously don't uh, have the same taste in the way we wear our skin, but uh, everything, everything else, I think the things that are important, we definitely agree. <laughs> how do you handle the colourful language? <laughs> it's oh man. Um, it's made me pretty bad. I'm, I can't really hang out around my nephews and nieces anymore. I don't think my brothers and sisters are there. <laughs> well, oh, oh my gosh! So you've become a little bit of have you become a little bit of a potty mouth? Have you? Oh yeah, man. <laughs> it's hard not to. It's, it's the that's the lingo of the gym. Yeah, no, no. Uh, fair, <laughs> fair, fair, fair play to you as well. But I but I wonder too whether the both of you have have. De- have have this. I know this is a deep dive, but I I understand where you're coming from, an almost spiritual connection, almost religious connection, to what you're both trying to achieve and the sport that you both love. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're both um, 
you know, neither of us are in it for money or anything. We're we're in it for the love of the sport. Um, I really love just growing in the sport, especially getting my age and stuff. And and he just wants to make champions. And he's lost money putting me on. He's lost tens of thousands of dollars putting me on and and trying to get me to where I am at the moment. He hasn't made any money off me. Um, so and you know, knowing that he has that belief in me is like being such an important part and growing my own self-belief it's like man this guy is really really believes in me so i gotta i gotta believe in myself to kind of almost pay him back because <laughs> i can't really do it so 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 where did you first come into contact with uh, isaac uh we when i moved and i started training with uh, john mckay uh in 2009 that's when i first met isaac he would he just recently joined there too and um that yeah that's how we met what was your first impression Ah, oh, that he was, just, you know, he's just a dude you're kind of afraid of. He's just this real rough-looking hmm. kid with all these tats, and yeah, he didn't suffer fools or anything like that. And yeah, I used to have to spar him back too, and I was real green back then. He used to bash me up, and yeah. Well, he was he was a handy he was, he, he was a handy fighter in his own right. So, do, does a lot of the respect for him come from the fact that he's been in the square office? Oh, definitely, man. Like he was. Um, he was a really tough fighter. I mean, he was, um, and he just figured out a way to beat, to beat good guys. He was, um, and he would tough it out and just the mental endurance he had. I think he was probably one of the most mentally like fit guys in the country for boxing. And, uh, because he didn't have a lot of power. Mm. <laughs> He'll admit that. <laughs> what do you told him now? Pillifisted. You told everybody now. <laughs> he was pretty pillow-fisted, but he uh, he got some good wins, and a lot of that was just um, just the mentality he brought to the sport, and that's what he's been. That's been his biggest thing that he's been sharing with us. Um, us other boxers in the gym. Now I have to apologize. So, yeah, I have to apologize. What's his brother's name? Who's also in your corner? Boaz. Pardon. Boaz, B O A Z. <laughs> oh, Boaz, Boaz. Okay, so yeah, so, yeah. so where, where does he fit into the scheme of things as far as the team goes, and with you? Oh, he's um he's like a trainer. He he gives us heaps of um pads, but he's he's got his own little insights. You know, it's um uh, it's a it's a it's a thing that like what people think that boxing is an individualist, you know, an individual mm. sport, but it's not. You need a team just like a race car driver, you know, he needs people who understand the car and are gonna work on it and do all the things around the scenes that um and he gets in and he drives it. But there's some there's a huge team behind it and Bose is a big part of that. Mm. It's kind of hard to explain all the things that he does, but he does heaps of little things for us and getting us ready, um, keeping us prepared and just even little little hints that he gives us in the corner. I reckon if I didn't have him there giving me like just little gems, um, I wouldn't have got through that fight. Wow! Wow! Well, that's a well. Okay, yeah, seriously, that's a yeah. that's a that's that's a really big call. I mean, he's he's as colourful on his skin as he is colourful with his mouth as as Isaac is. <laughs> no, nah, they're like oh. they're pretty similar, but they're completely different personalities. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, and of course, you've got you've got uh, Andre and uh, Mikhailovich, Jerome Pamplo, and Miyamoto in the gym. Yeah. D- how being in that gym? How important is that going forward? Having all of them, yeah. Or... Having all of them oh, around man. you, you know, for people that are succeeding in what they're doing. That sort of success thing. 
Yeah, it's you're exactly right, it's huge. And I think what's so so awesome about our gym is that no one sees himself as bigger than the gym. You know, it's kind of like that. It's a bit maybe a bit of a Kiwi thing, but it, it really works. I think um, just everyone's like super humble and got their own talents and got their own you know exceptional abilities in their own right. And but no one sees himself as bigger than anyone else in our gym. Everyone's doing it for the gym. Everyone's building each other up and pushing each other we're all push each other on the bags push each other in our training and yeah they're exactly right like you hold yourself to a higher standard when you see so much talent and success around you and um, yeah I reckon having everyone in the gym like Andre and Jerome and Mia Mia is amazing uh, it, it's it plays such a big part into your own success and your own motivation and self-belief so you've got you're now the mandatory challenger for Lawrence Oakley's WBO cruiserweight title. He's eighteen and zero. You're twenty and zero. When do you want to fight him? Is it going to be up to you? Uh, is it going to be a first bid, or is it just are you going to just have to wait for the WBO to make a decision? Uh, it's a first bid, um, but I think it's probably going to be in England. Um, we're aiming for March that kind of thing so we get a good um we're able to put together a good stable um because he's six foot six um he's pretty much Jeepers the opposite creepers. kind of fight to the guy i just fought <laughs> so i'm gonna need to find some uh some you know sparring partners because there aren't many six foot six cruiserweights around uh <laughs> so it sounds to me like you're going to be beaten up by a lot of big heavyweights <laughs> yeah but i need the i need the tall guys you know yeah the tall rangy kind of fighters uh we're going to have to um, get a lot of, you know, it's going to be a lot of prep. We're going to have to put uh, put together a good camp. Um, and if I can mention as well, I'm probably going to need a lot of sponsorship, you know, trying to get these kind of guys in there to get me in the best shape that I can be in for this fight. Wow. And, you know, we've we've seen Joseph Parker struggle against tall men. I mean, he's, he's 6'1", 6'2". Mm-hmm. Was he, is he 6'3", or 6'4", JP? What would he be? Uh, he's 6'4", I think. 6'4", but, you know, there are guys bigger than you're going to face bigger guys in the reaches who's getting inside the getting inside that reach, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, luckily, you know, when they're 6'6", in a cruiserweight, they have to be a bit gangly, so um, they're not just, you know, 6'6", 130-kilo monsters that are, you know, leaning down on you. <laughs> so so, so, so when, you, when, you, when you start talking tactics and you talk about gangly tall uh, cruiserweights, mm. Is part of the idea of thinking if you get inside, you just pummel the hell out of the body rather than look for the big knockout. They actually wear them down. I mean, you got to go with whatever's um, kind of open to you. But yeah, I think in this fight that will be the key. It's um, you know once you're inside, you got to work your butt off, um, and then apart from that, you got to make sure that you're not at the end of his long levers, which is uh, the kind of leverage that he's able to put into the punch. Um, but you know. It's you know a fight's a fight. There's a, it's a bit chaotic, and you got to find the um, the opportunities when they when they present themselves. Well, there's a big opportunity presenting <laughs> itself right now for you, David. And we're we're uber <laughs> proud of where you're at at the moment. How's the body and uh, and how's you. the mind feeling right now? No, I'm feeling really good, and you know, coming off that fight, I'm feeling really confident. Um, I'm feeling like you know we can get this. We can definitely get this world title. Um, you know, he's he's beatable. He's very beatable, and. Um, I think if the country gets behind it and shows their support, and you know, we work our we work the way that we think that we need to, then we can come home with the W. Now, is and the, the belt? Yeah, well, that's that's what we all would love to see you do. Was the great white your moniker uh, named because of shark or because you're just white and you're great? <laughs> 
I guess there's a little bit of a double entendre there, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll stick with the shark to stay out of trouble. <laughs> All right, mate. Hey, David, thanks so much for giving us your time this Sunday afternoon. Have an enjoyable festive season, and we will talk to you again and really look forward to it. Thank you so much, Stephen. Appreciate awesome to be with you. Cheers, mate. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. It's a 20 past one. David Light, mandatory challenger for Lawrence Ockley's WBO Cruiserweight title, Ockley at 18-0. and 0. And David Light is one of the nicest blokes, as you heard, uh, going around. And he is one of the toughest roosters as well. I, uh, ben, are you big on your fight sports? I like my boxing. And, and you've so, so you've seen David Light fight before. Mm-hmm. He's a tough rooster and... And probably the most, <laughs> you know, humble one of the most humble blokes you'll ever meet, right? Well, you got to be tough to be under Isaac Peach, don't you? <laughs> I, I remember, I remember producing you one night. It was Isaac there and Andre Mikhailovich there, and the, the amount of times you're having to just be like, calm down. Well, the only re- the hold only the brakes, hold that's the brakes. right. That's the only reason I've had. To, I, I, I say calm the farm is because I know there's going to be an f f bomb being thrown. Uh, but Isaac Peach and I, I love. That's why I had to ask him about the relationship because David's a very humble quiet guy and and Isaac has turns into this this different beast in the ring but when you get Isaac off and out of the ring completely different individual and I, and I sort of now understand listening to David how the relationship works did you sort of get that yeah I did uh, you know I th- it's always important especially in a in a fight game to have that relationship with your trainer as well and kind of when to know I'm trying to think of the best way to say it. When when to kind of emphasize things and kind of put yourself out there, I guess. I just it just it's a it's from because from the when you're looking outside, looking in, it looks total chalk and cheese. But now we know uh, why it works. It's one twenty-one. If you've got some thoughts on David Light's prospects as a WBO champion, because he's got to do that first. Oh eight hundred one five oh eight eleven. That's oh eight hundred one five oh eight eleven. Or feel free to drop us a text on the Temper Bed Post text line on double eight double three. Still a lot to come uh, before two o'clock this afternoon. We'll hear from uh, Ryan Fox who was uh, playing in this thing called the Super 6 Chase the Fox competition at Royal Auckland Grange on Friday afternoon. I was fortunate enough to be the MC out there so I've got a couple of well, some really interesting insights as to what went down over there and uh, give us your thoughts about England. Are you disappointed that England are not now in the semi-finals of the FIFA World Cup after being beaten by France 2-1 early on today? This is SENZ on a Sunday afternoon, the 11th day of December 2022 with Stephen McIver and Ben Francis across New Zealand and Australia. If you're listening on the SEN app, good afternoon or actually probably good morning to you wherever you might be. It's 1.27. Uh, I know you love playing your favourite music here, which is cool by me. Who was that? Uh, that was a Kiwi band. Uh, I don't think they're together at the moment, but they're called uh, Midnight Youth. Right, okay. I like, see, when you mention Kiwi bands, I just mention my favourite young Kiwi band. I always, I've paid you the Flaxies before, right? Yeah. You heard about the Flaxies? In, fa- in fact, if we try and find it, we went by a bit of Flaxies today. Shall we Shall we do that? Can we Can we do that today? We, we can do we that, We can yeah. do that, because I know they're about to drop a new single as well called uh, Brain Teasers, and they've they're, they're, uh, got a very busy festival. They're going to the Rhythm and Alps as well. And uh, Okay, so we've, we've done our promo for the uh, people we love. Just a little update too, by the way, on it, uh, the base 
Inflation Reserve. It is the Bangladesh women against the White Ferns in the first one-day international. Uh, they have 38 and a half overs of the 50 done so far. Bangladesh won the toss and elected to bat. They are 116 for three. That's 116 for three. Sultana, that's right, Sultana, uh, is 43 not out off 104 balls. And Mondala's in there at 21 not out off 46. So 116 for three currently. They've just rolled into the 40th over now. Uh, Bangladesh winning the toss and electing to bat. So it's a busy old day. Um, what else have we, What else is going on around the place? Uh, the FIFA World Cup, we're going to play your highlights a little later on this afternoon. Did you see the Portugal-Morocco game coming? Did you see that in any stretch of your imagination, Ben Francis? I didn't see it, but if we were going into the quarterfinals, uh, that would probably be the one game where you probably thought this could be an upset. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And yet uh, it's interesting. The numbers come out. Morocco is the first African team to qualify for the World Cup semifinals in 88 years after, get this, 48 tests. They're known as the Atlas Lions. I meant to find out what the Atlas Lions is all about. Uh, but <laughs> yet a lot of the post-match talk is about Ronaldo walking off in tears, and that's probably it for him. Well, of course it is. It's always about Ronaldo. You know what? I was trying to defend him the other day. I was trying to defend him because, you know, magnificent player. We, can, we can't not take that into account, Right. A huge following on social media, most in the world, five hundred million or whatever. But the fact that he didn't stay out there and just wandered off by himself without his teammates, sort of to me, did smack of a little bit of. Hmm, it's all about me. Was this? Was this your? your I think you were talking with Sam Hewitt. It was about the arrogance and ah, yes. So we were talking about the arrogance versus you know overconfidence. Yeah. And I, I'm beginning to, and that's just that. It was just reminded me of that that one moment this morning. I went, maybe, maybe Sam was a little right. He was a he's a hater anyway. <laughs> he's not a Ronaldo fan, right? But it did remind me of that. What, what was your take? Well, I for me, in terms of arrogance, you know, it can rub off the wrong way. But I guess if you can back it up. I guess that's where I kind of think it's all right because I think of a guy like in darts, Michael Van Gerwen. He always goes out and says, I'm the best, I'm the best. But nine times out of ten, he backs it up. He goes and wins everything he does. So when, Well, of course, did. Well, this year, actually, he's won four televised majors. He's won the Premier League. He won the – I think he won the match play. He won the Grand Prix. And he won – I think it was the – it was like the Players' Championship, the European so, Championship. So when we had the World Series out here, yep. it felt like he was on, on the rebound somewhat, but he hadn't had the greatest season coming. So, And I know you're the darts expert. That's why I'm having this conversation yep. with you. What do you think went wrong with MVG? It's probably what? Are we saying a year ago would be fair? A year ago, six months. Well, I think I think you could even just put it hold down to the whole COVID thing because we had we had a whole lot of winners in tournaments that we just hadn't seen before, and those guys, of course, went up the rankings and got the points, and now they're struggling to defend it because lots of the tournaments went on, but they were behind closed doors. So we saw different winners. Van Gerwen, just before he came here, he actually had surgery on his wrist. I think it was tunnel carpal. 
Oh, carpal tunnel the yeah, other way around. Yeah, the other way around. So <laughs> I, I, was, I was half all right. Yeah, you were. But, but, um, but he had surgery on that. So maybe it was just a bit of time adjusting to that. But when I, I was listening to the discussion, and that was the first example I could think of. But like I say, he usually can back it up. And I kind of, and I kind of thing as well. It's a bit of a Dutch thing because like Max Verstappen's a bit like Careful. that. Careful, it's a bit of a Dutch thing. <laughs> I love everyone except the Dutch. Well, <laughs> that great, you know, that great like, movie line out well, of Austin Powers. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm not that sort of person. I just like like the Dutch. <laughs> Michael Caine. <laughs> but, but I was I was just thinking of like Max Verstappen. You know, he he to me he has that same arrogant edge as well. I don't think it is. I actually believe it's just. The Dutch way. I think we misinterpret that. Well, that, a lot. Yeah, that comes with what I mean. It's the Dutch. <laughs> okay, we're not here to offend any Dutch. Uh, please don't get me wrong. But if you've got some thoughts on that, <laughs> oh, oh, by, by the way, uh, I'm hearing that you've got the Barry Hearn coming up on your Oki show, right? Yeah, tomorrow night at the Oki, I think it's quarter past 10. We've got the godfather, Barry Hearn. Did, man- you, did you know at his, his, his mansion in England, he has peacocks that roam the grounds? Ask him about the peacocks and why peacocks. He has a cricket ground there as well where his club plays. And a helipad. He's got everything. It's one thirty-three Sunday afternoon with Stephen McIver and Ben Francis. If you've got thoughts on anything that's happening in the world of sport over the last 24, 48 hours and what we are talking about, 0800 150811 or the Temper Bed Post text line on double eight double three. Ryan Fox is next. 1.37 on a Sunday afternoon with Stephen McIver and Ben Francis. A wicket to the White Ferns. Uh, Mondala's gone uh, for 22 of 49. Stumped by McFadden, bold Kerr. And currently Bangladesh in the 42nd over, uh, 129 for four. The other day I had the good fortune of talking to one of the nicest blokes you'll ever meet, and that's Ryan Fox, who was uh, back in the country. He was playing the Super 6 tournament on Friday at the Royal uh, Auckland and Grange Golf Horse, but I wanted to chat to him about the year that he's had and asked him straight up, uh, wow, finishing the year, how does it feel to finish as world number 29? Uh, pretty surreal, to be honest. It's been a, uh, a a pretty quick rise up the rankings this year and, um, you know, enjoyed every every minute of it and, you know, to get a couple of wins and, you know, also, you know, we'll be, be there for the Masters next year as uh, sort of I've ticked all my goals off and, and more. So, yeah, I'm... I'm Pretty happy sitting here and um, getting to reflect on the year now. For a golfer, how big a deal is the Masters, that one tournament? Yeah, I mean, it's the majors are obviously a step above everything else. And, um, yeah, I think the Masters is, is sort of the one that's held differently than the rest. I mean, I think the Open as well is, is probably, um, especially in Europe and the UK, it, it's held in pretty high esteem. But there's something about the Masters, you know, it's been at the same course for I think since 1934 it's no it's got all the history it's yeah there's I don't know there's as I think just as a golfer in general to be able to go there and play or or watch it it's got an aura about it and then to actually do it and play it in the masters I think has just a, a little bit of extra significance do you think do you think it brings the scare factor to a golfer um Yes, I think so. I mean, it's, it's just renowned as I think the greens have the scare factor to them. They're fast and slopey and everything like that. I don't think it's no, it's not a Shinnecock or something like that, a US Open venue that's regarded as being absolutely brutal. But I just think it, it's, it's got an, I think an aura is probably the best way to put it. There's something about that place that's just special. So 2022 has been a standout year. You finished second on the European Tour, which is mega. 
But where does that stand in winning the Alfred Dunhill links? Which is the better? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess second second is probably better overall because it's in, you know it shows a good form over the whole year. Yeah. But you know, I guess in this game, winning's kind of everything. You know, you don't get to win a lot in golf. I mean, you think Tiger at his at his absolute best was winning thirty percent of his golf tournaments, which in itself is scary. But it, you know, it's nothing like the All Blacks or a Federer or Djokovic Nadal kind of thing. So I think. You know, a win is extra special in this game, and you know to get two, but especially one at Dunhill Links, one of one of our iconic uh, tournaments, and you know getting to do it at the home, getting to win at the home of golf in St Andrews on Sunday is that was pretty hard to beat. Has there ever been any desire to go on the PGA Tour? The the dream's been there for a while. I thought it had kind of passed me by a little bit, to be honest. You know, I'm I'm 35 now, and it seems to be getting younger and younger golf these days. So. Um, I was quite happy in Europe, but it looks like I'm going to get an opportunity to play a lot of the state next year. So that sort of dream's been reinvigorated slightly and looking forward to a bit of a new challenge in that regard. Mate, you, you, make, you make 35 sound like you're over the hill. My gosh, that's, that's super young, man. In, in golf, traditionally it has been, but it's certainly getting younger. I think I read something the other day, um, you know, you, the average age on the PJ Tour 10 or 15 years ago was was sort of mid mid 30s even later 30 and now it's sort of late 20s and there's a lot of guys that come out 21 22 okay. you know winning everything you know Jordan Spieth those kind of guys and I think because golf's become a lot more athletic a lot a lot more power based I think the window in the games a lot shorter you know it's it's becoming a lot more like other sports where you know you've probably got from 20 to say 35 as a you know, in a sport like cricket or tennis or something like that, you know, you're kind of not necessarily over the hill, but it's harder to compete with the younger guys when you when when you when speed and power is involved. And golf's definitely going that way now. But I still feel like I've got a few good years left at least. Oh, cripes! It's a brutal reality reality check, though, isn't it? It is. It is. And I mean, you know, it's kind of weird thinking about. It. You know, I've had my best year as a 35 year old and. If I'm playing pretty much any other sport, yeah, you know, I'd be thinking about retiring right now. So, you know, I can count my blessings in that regard. But it's certainly, I think, getting harder and harder to compete as you get older. You know, into your 40s now, you tend to lose a fair bit of distance. And, you know, distance seems to be king, and especially men's golf at the moment. So um, I might have to put in a fair bit of work to keep up the length that I've got and, and be able to compete with those young guys. But does technology help that as well, club technology? Yeah, club technology definitely does. I mean, you look at someone like Phil Mickelson, who you know, we obviously won the PGA a couple of years ago, and and went on a on a distance or chasing distance for a little while, and um, you know, a lot of that was technology, lighter shafts, um, you know, your heads. Um, you know, you, you you can definitely mitigate some, but it's not like the old school where it was wooden drivers and steel shafts, and it was you, you kind of. It was all on you to, to how hard you swung it. So at least, yeah, I can definitely look at technology in that regard going forward. I, I'm intrigued to understand how Marcus Wheelhouse has helped you. Mark, I've been with Marcus for ten years. It's been, um, he's helped every every bit of my golf game. I was pretty much ready to to give up in my second year as a pro when I started working with Marcus. And I mean, you can, yeah, I'm I'm here now obviously in the top 30 in the world, so I can thank Wheelie for 
got basically all of that. What What do you think was the major change he made to you? Attitude? Uh, no, it was, it was. Well, I think it was a lot of everything, but it was um, the technique. Is I, I do a lot more technique stuff with Marcus than anything else, and um, you know we were. I guess when I went and saw him, I, I had a had a golf swing that wasn't easily repeatable um, and obviously consistency is king in this game and uh, we worked pretty hard for a decent period of time to you know to be able to do it and then to also be able to do it under pressure consistently is is key and yeah it's, it's been a long process but you know I wouldn't say we've figured it out because I don't think you ever figure out this game but I've figured it out more often than not at least. What, what do you think was the key to the relationship of, of him improving you as a golfer? Well, I, the big thing for me is Marcus has played. You know, he played on tour for so many years, so he understands how how to get. You know, that the score is the best is the most important thing in this game. Doesn't matter. It doesn't have to look pretty. Obviously, consistency is important, but it's you know, it's getting a ball on the hole. It's it's hitting shots you want to hit under pressure, and having someone that's played the game. At a high level, um, you know, obviously it was world number one amateur and played tour golf. I think it was for twelve or fifteen years. Um, you know, and I first met Marcus playing golf against him. So um, to have someone with that insight and you know, it helps when you, you know, you know, in tournament mode, you know, a little tweak can make a big difference. But it's not time to go and you know reinvent the wheel. So we've we've picked and picked our moments quite well when to really work on the golf swing and then when to trying to just manage it best we can in, t- in tournament mode, and he's been really good at that over the last 10 years. Mate, do you think casual observers of golf have any idea of the grind of a professional golfer? Um, I think they've got an idea of how frustrating the game is. I don't think they quite... Uh, I think it's they've said it's a bit more glamorous than what it's made out to be. Um, you know, we... You know, you see, especially the top guys flying, you know, private jets or, you know, in the case of a few of them, flying their own jets everywhere. And we get to play some amazing golf courses. But you see a lot of hotel rooms. You see a lot of airports. And in the end, you know, you play 30 events a year. Um, you know, you've still got – it's still a hotel room. It's still a golf course. It's still an airport. And it's it does become a bit more of a job than what it's what you think. And then, you know, any, any weekend hacker will know that, that golf will do your head in. And when you're doing it – a couple of hundred, 250 days a year or something like we do it, it's going to get to you at some point. So there's definitely the, the frustration level uh, is pretty high for us at times. But, you know, I still get to do what I love for a living. So I'm not, not complaining about that. But it, it, does, it is probably a little, a little tougher at times than what people think it is. Are you at the point in your career where you can take uh, wife Annika and uh, daughter Isabel on tour with you? Yep. So they did. Uh, they actually travelled last year through COVID a little bit. It's a, back into last year and they travelled uh, they're up in the UK based in the UK from June this year and we probably came to about 75, 80% of my tournaments after that so did long haul travel as well we went to South Africa and Dubai at the end of the year and then came home so that it's great having them on tour obviously travelling with a toddler she's <laughs> almost two now, it makes it a bit more interesting but you know, it, it actually helps with that frustration side of things, you know I get off the golf course doesn't matter what I shoot, you know. She she treats me the same, and it's, an, it's a good distraction in that way. You know, I can sort of leave golf at the golf course, kind of thing. And you know, in previous years, I might have probably taken it back to 
back to the hotel room and let it frustrate me even more. And having them travel has been great. Maybe that's the secret sauce to 2022, hey? Yeah, well, it certainly helped with being able to travel properly this year. Um, and, yeah, having, having them on tour for the most part was great. We obviously had a, a few difficult moments, as anyone that's travelled with a toddler will know. But, um, yeah, it's, it, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and hopefully we can do some of the same next year. Do, does being in the top 30, does that bring any benefits to you from tournaments? Um, yeah, it does. I mean, there's a, some of the top 50 events in the States next year on the PJ Tour. So, um, you know, Bay Hill, the match play players, um, a few others, and obviously all the majors for next year, if I can stay in the top 50. So, yeah, there's a lot of benefits in that regard. And, um, yeah, it's a pretty exciting potential schedule for next year if I can stay in that top 50. Hey, uh, Ryan, I really appreciate your time. Good to chat. And to you and the family, happy Christmas, mate. Cheers, Stephen. You too. Appreciate it. Ryan Fox, one of the good guys in the world of sport and uh, gives you so much time when you wanted to have a have a yarn with him. So at the Super 6 Golf Tournament, which was the inaugural concept of uh, teams of three trying to chase down Ryan, so he would play two holes, two holes, two holes with all the sort of celebrity teams and they he, it was him against them. In the end it turned out he hit two under over the six holes and team cricket of Lockie uh, Ferguson, Mitchell Santner and also uh, Ross Taylor equaled him as well at two under, but he gave them the trophy, which I thought was pretty cool. But a fantastic event. And the fact that John Key, the former Sir John Key, got a hole in one, you would have thought you were at the Masters with the amount of uh, noise that went up. It was really cool, actually. I spoke to uh, Sir John after the the round. It was his first ever, first ever hole in one. It was a par three, and he had a seven wood, a seven wood into the wind. And he was going, Really? But it, it was a pretty cool day, and uh, a lot of congratulations must go to Nick Randall and the team at POTUS for uh, getting it underway. And it'll be it'll make a great TV event. It was a proof of concept, and it worked super well. It's uh, ten to two. One fifty-four on a Sunday afternoon with Stephen McIver. And if you are in the mood to talk anything today, you are more than welcome. We've been talking uh, Ryan Fox golf in the last fifteen minutes. And before that, David Light, now the mandatory WBO challenger for the Cruiserweight title against Lawrence Ockley, who he's hoping to. It's going to be a purse fight as well, hoping to do it in England and hopefully make some money. Finally, interesting to know that uh, he is incredibly humble about his relationship with Isaac Petrie. He says, Isaac's lost a lot of money just having me on his cards to get him where, where he wants, but that's what their relationship is like and how important is it is. Coming your way inside, but... Two and three this afternoon, hoping to uh, make connection. We have connected with them or before, but uh, Brad Stein, who coached Jim Courier to four major wins and number one in the world, but also get his thoughts on the passing of Nick Boliteri at age 91 around this time last week. Uh, a man who had uh, 10 players. In his early days, he had 10 players go through to become number ones in the world. And uh, all the memories that are being shared by uh, his former charges and tennis people around the world suggest Nick Boliteri was a crazy man. He even said he was crazy himself, but such a good guy, such a good guy, and changed the way uh, a lot of tennis coaches thought about how they should look after their charges. So there's a lot coming your way, uh, not too far away. After two, Brad Stein here on SNZ Afternoons with McIver and Francis.
This is SENZ and SEN in Australia. Stephen McCarver, Ben Francis on deck till 5 o'clock this afternoon. It's the 11th day of December 2022 and the, the Tennessee year has wound down, but not really wound down. Professional athletes on the WTA Tour and ATP Tour only have a very small downtime before they get back into it and start looking at the lead-up tournaments ahead of the first major of the year, which is the Australian Open. Uh, this time last week, uh, one of the icons, a Hall of Famer, International Tennis Hall of Famer, passed away. His name was Nick Bolateri, passed away at the age of 91, but also credited with having an influence on a huge number of players that made it to number one, notably the likes of uh, Agassi, the Williams sisters, Becker was his first big one, uh, Sharapova, Rijos, Hingis, Jankovic, and also Jim Courier. But the man who had a huge hand in Jim Courier's four major wins and took him to number one joins us right now. That man is Brad Stein. Good evening to you, Brad. How you doing, Stephen? Yeah, I, I'm well. When you heard the passing of Nick Bolateri, did you take any time to think about the influence he'd had on the game of tennis? Oh, of course. I mean, how could you not? I think that, um, I mean, Nick really changed uh the way the game was was played not so much played but from the standpoint of training and 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 players leaving home to go to the academy system i mean Bolateri's now what is uh IMG Academy in in Florida was was really the first uh academy and uh the academy system was really created by Nick he, he had this uncanny ability to be able to find something in players. I think he himself even even said that uh, the fuel that sustained me to the summit is without doubt my passion to help others become champions of life, not just champions on the tennis court. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's a noble, that's a noble approach, isn't it? And, mm-hmm. and, and I'm a big believer in the fact that, uh, you know, developing character in players um, off the court translates to better character and better decision making and and uh, tougher competitors on court. You know, and I think that's the way the way Nick approached things. I mean, I think he, you know, he had a background in in the military, and um, you know, he was he was a, a tough taskmaster when it came to training uh, all those guys. I mean, you, you look at the, the early years, especially at Bolateri's when you had guys like Jimmy Arias and Aaron Krikstein that came out and had, uh, success on the tour at such young ages. And, and a lot of that was obviously credited to the training system and the amount of time and, and energy that those guys put in, in their training. And, and really also the Nick created a system within, within the Academy where he was really, um, he was getting all the top players together to be able to train together and work together and, and develop their skills together. And, and I think if you look historically, um, I know in the U.S., but I think really most places around the world, a lot of the best players have come out of environments, where, whether it was a city or a club or someplace where they had an opportunity to to train and work with other top level athletes. And a lot of times you, you saw multiple guys coming from the same places. So uh, and that, that's really what he did with creating the Academy. In many ways, uh, success breeds success, right? Uh, absolutely. A hundred percent. 
part of his philosophy, it is said, was to emphasise the tactical, use the racket technology and use power over finesse. Do you think that was in any way groundbreaking in the game of tennis? Well, I think Nick, I think Nick created a, he created a system. You know, he had a belief in the fact that, um, I mean, he really, he really developed the concept that we still kind of use, which is that the game is dominated by serve and forehand. And um, he, he had guys training and just, just hitting forehands absolutely as big as they could back in the day. And if you, if you look at Crickstein and Arias and Courier and Agassi, I mean, those guys' games revolved a lot around uh, running around and, and finding forehands and, and dictating from the offside of the court with their forehands. And, and really that was a system that Nick had kind of created, you know, and, and um, he took that, he took that even up to we, – we used to call it in the old days, we used to call it the volley volley was the uh, <laughs> full-swinging forehand volley out of the air, you know. Anytime yeah. you saw a guy rip a forehand out of the air, we, we would literally say, oh, that's the volley volley. Yeah, but but when you're there, nothing better to watch, right? Uh, yeah, it was always very entertaining, <laughs> that's for sure. Jim was, Jim was very, uh, was very well – conditioned and, and competent at that shot when uh, when we first started working together. Yeah, and, and how did that come about? Because I'm intrigued about this relationship because I, I was fortunate and I, God, I can't remember what it was that Jim Curry at one stage turned up at the ASB, which is now known as the ASB Classic in Auckland and uh, he, he was the most affable, genuine human, one of the, the most affable, genuine human beings I've met. Do, is, that, is that how you see him? Uh, Jim, Jim's always been, um, a very, a very, um, approachable person. Yeah. I mean, open and, um, obviously very articulate and, uh, he loves exchanging ideas with people and, and creating conversation, you know? And, and, uh, so I think that's, that's pretty normal. You know, our relationship really started back when Jim was about, uh, 15 years old. I, I was lucky enough to get involved with what we called back in those days, the junior Davis cup, which was really our U S junior national team. And um, it was a hell of a team. Jump in it was a hell of a team though. When you had like some Curry and Sam press and Washington Chan and Todd Martin, hell. Yeah, no, it was uh listen, I was, I was incredibly lucky to get involved with that program when I did. And just like, you know, those guys that you just mentioned, I mean, we basically had everyone, from that era of tennis outside of, of uh, Agassi. Andre was the only guy that really, he had, he had you know, gone to Boletaries and was basically training on his own there and, and um, was turning pro, you know, a little bit earlier than those other guys. But, but yeah, we had Sampras and Courier and Michael Chang and Todd Martin and Malavia Washington and uh, Jonathan Stark, Jared Palmer, Jeff Tarango, basically every guy that you can, name in American tennis that that made the top 100 in the in the 1990s was at some point or another a part of that Junior Davis Cup um, program and so I was lucky enough to get involved with that Um, the guy who was the head coach at that time was a a guy named Greg Patton who's a bit of a coaching legend here in the United States especially in collegiate tennis Um, and and Greg asked me to be his assistant coach and, and I took that position, and, and really that made all the difference in, in my coaching career was, was getting involved in that 
program. And that, that put me in touch with Jim when Jim was about 15 years old originally. And um, we maintained a relationship, uh, you know, to some degree or another until he turned pro. And then when he decided to make a coaching change, um, he reached out to Tom Gullickson, who at that time was the, the head of men's tennis for the United States Tennis Association. And um, Tom was really doing a, a great job at uh, connecting players with, with coaches. And he put Jim um, with Jose Higueras. Jose Higueras um, didn't want to really travel a lot. And so they reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in being uh, Jim's traveling coach at that time. And, and for me, that was an amazing uh, opportunity to really kind of mentor under under Jose. I'd already spent quite a bit of time with Tom Bellickson, you know, and, and considered him to be a mentor of mine, but I hadn't really met Jose at, at, at that time. And then I went down, Jose lived in Palm Springs. I live in California. I live about five and a half hours North of Palm Springs. And so I went down and met with him and Jim down there and, and uh, spent a week or so training and, and made a commitment to, to start working with Jim on a more full-time basis and traveling with him um, and really being mentored. And, and Jose was, you know, what we would describe, you know, as being kind of the lead coach at that time. So when he won those four majors, were you his sole coach? Uh, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. That, that's, um, you know, Jose was, Jose was working with him. At the Aussie Open, Jose never came to Australia. So I got a lot of credit for being there and being in Australia because I was, I was the one that was there and present with Jim on a day-to-day basis during those tournaments. Mm-hmm. The two French titles that he won, Jose was with us as well. And Jose, uh, Jose came to the other three Grand Slams. He normally, he obviously he lived in Palm Springs, so he came to the Indian Wells event every year. Um, he, he took Jim when Jim got to that level, he was the guy that went to the ATP finals with Jim. Um, and then Jim, Jim actually moved and did all of his, um, did all of his training blocks in Palm Springs with Jose. And I would often go down and spend time down there, the three of us together. But, um, I, I did all the rest of the traveling. So I went to all those, the, the, all four of the, the slams with Jim. The only event that I really didn't go to was ATP Finals. Jose always did ATP Finals on his own. But you're part of the process, which is an important part. And I've always wondered how much influence does a coach have on a tennis player on a weekly basis? Um, I, I think that that's, uh, you know, it, it, it depends, obviously, at what stage you are in your development, um, both as a relationship coach and player and also with the player. I mean, I've, I've had the opportunity, you know, when I started with Jim, Jim was about 20 years old. He was already ranked about 28 in the world. So he was pretty well established on the tour. Um, that being said, Jose had laid out, you know, some plans and, and one of those things, one of the, the primary things, and I think probably the most important thing that gave Jim an opportunity to, to win slams and become number one in the world was the development of a slice backhand. And so we, we spent, Jose basically made us, you know, shake hands on an agreement that we would spend time working on and hitting slice backhands every single day that we were on the tour, whether he was playing matches or just training on those days. 
And um, so that was one of the things that we did. And that, that was a commitment that we made. So for, on a weekly basis, if you look what we did from week to week, when we were on the road, there was a, there was a commitment to working on the slice backhand, you know, every single day. Uh, obviously, every player is different. You know, I, 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 I spent time, I started working with Marty Fish when Marty was 18 years old. So um, the development and what goes on from a weekly basis with a player like that is very different than the time that I spent with, I coached uh, Sebastian Grosjean. I started with Sebastian when he was about 28 years old. He was married and had two kids. Obviously, much different situation, much different kind of uh, stage in his life than working with a, a guy like Marty Fish when he was 18. So it just depends, you know, it, it's the answer to most questions for me is always, it depends. It depends <laughs> on, on so many, on so many different factors. You know, there's so many different factors that are involved, you know, what was Korea's greatest strength? I mean, I think that, that anybody that was around Jim and to this day, you know, would, would say that it was his, uh, his mental fortitude, um, his sense of determination and commitment. You, you combine that with an incredible work ethic and one of the biggest forehands in the game during that time. And, um, and you came out with a great player. And, and you know, his, his work ethic and his, his dedication and his commitment are, are one of the things that led him to develop an extremely adequate slice backhand. Again, you know, that was, that was Jose's blueprint for what Jim needed to do to really develop himself was really slice backhand and also the ability to transition and come forward and play more at the net. Um, and, and adding those things to his game um, and him making the commitment to, to, to add those things are really the things I think that that gave him a chance to really dominate the game for, for the period of time that he did. Do you think tennis has changed much since that time? Has it become in the men's game, at least too much of a power game where, whereby they don't mix it up enough. We don't see enough serve and volley. We don't see enough players at the net. Uh, it sounds like you've already made a decision about that question. Stephen. <laughs> Semi-joking. <laughs> Semi-joking. Yeah, I feel like you're leading the witness with the way the way you presented that question. But I, I'm not going to. But I'm not going to disagree with you. I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you. I mean, I, I think that the the game has um, the game has become much more linear. I would mm. say, you know, the 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 um, the racket technology, the string technology. Um, you, you have kids that are growing up now from the ages of six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old playing with rackets and strings that allow them to really um, develop power games early on. And they continue to play those power games through their junior careers. And because of the way they're hitting the ball, it, it, it has created a scenario where the game has become much more linear. There's a lot more balls that pass out the baseline without crossing over a sideline first. Um, and, and because of that power, it becomes more difficult for players that do play with a little bit more touch and feel um, to be able to take advantage of that because the, it's hard to take that kind of pace that, that is being created nowadays off the ball and be able to create angles and use other parts of the court. This is, so, why, this is why we go uh, to Ms. To some degree. Um, yeah, that, that being said... That being said, I mean, you still have 
I mean, absolutely some amazing tennis that's being played by the likes of, of Alcaraz and, uh, you know, the other guys that are at the top of the game right now. Um, I like to think, for example, that, you know, my charge that I'm coaching now, Tommy Paul, is a guy that's, that's trying to play more all-court, well-rounded tennis because he's not, a, he's not actually really a power player. And because he's not a power player, he, he, he has to be able to take advantage of the other, you know, attributes that, that, you can, that you can use within the game, creating angle, changing paces, coming forward and, and attacking the net a little bit more. And, um, and so that's something that we've been trying to do to, to give him an opportunity to compete against those guys um, that are just kind of, you know, banging the ball through the court. When you, when you talk about that in the style of the game today, you know who comes to my mind immediately? This, this is, a, you know, someone that's not a top 10 player, but it's someone that's playing that style of game a lot is a guy like Ilya Ivashka. God, never, ne- he, he's, a, he's what I would describe as a proponent of power tennis. Uh, you know, he, he sees the ball and he hits the ball and he hits the ball very big and he hits the ball through the court all the time. And he's a very, very good player and a very, very tough guy to deal with. I think I think the the basis of my question about the power game and the lack of you know touch and finesse is that it's you you the ATP's in trouble of making it a, a dull product, right? And I wonder whether I wonder whether there is a case to be made for for looking at racket technology and saying, well, hang on a minute, we need to dial this back a bit to make it more entertaining, or do you think it's still entertaining enough? And and I say this cautiously, knowing that you're in, let's be honest, the bubble of tennis. You're a coach. You're in that, on that tour. Yeah, sure, sure. But I'm also a fan of the game, you know, and and, um, and I want to see the best and the most entertaining tennis that we can present out there. And, and um, I think that that, you know, that's what spectators want to see as well. I mean, that being said, you know, look at, look at the the center Alcaraz match from this last US Open. Uh I mean one of the most exciting and entertaining matches you can you can possibly you know find within the game for the last number of years and and you're talking about two guys that are massive hitters center especially you know is a guy that that plays exactly like what you're talking about a lot. Um so yeah, I I I um I think there's there's two schools of thought in relationship to that. Um I wouldn't mind. I think one of the things that, that you just brought up, I mean, part of it's the racket technology, but I think also that the ATP has to do a little bit better job with court surface. I think that the, the court surface has become a little bit too homogenized um, and mm-hmm. that regardless of whether you're playing indoors, outdoors, um, even the clay to some degree has become a little bit too consistent with the pace I, I would like to see um, a little bit more variety in in the court surfaces that guys play on. You know, some weeks slower, some weeks faster. That would lend themselves to to more attacking tennis, more coming forward, um, and, and those kind of things. So, for for me, that's one of the things I think that they can improve. There is one argument that goes around consistently in the, in the world, and is who would be the greatest men's tennis player? And normally it comes around from the big three. And, you know, the big three, well, one of the big three's done, right? Federer, Nadal, or Djokovic. Do you have an opinion on this? Um, of course I have an opinion. 
<laughs> Let's see. You know, it's it's tough. It's tough, Stephen. I, I think that for me, the biggest single biggest factor in in who is the actual goat of the game, not necessarily who any individual, you know, likes the most. I mean, mm. I'm a Federer fan. I love the style of Federer's game. I, I love the artistry of his game. I love the attacking style that he plays within his game. But at this point, you know, who has the most slams? To me, that's the single most important factor is who has the most slams, and, and that's Rafa. Who's going to end up with the most slams? I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that it's going to be Novak. You know, unless unless Novak has um, some kind of a, a debilitating injury that keeps him playing for the next co- couple of years, or if uh, COVID comes back and he somehow doesn't isn't able to play half the slams every year for the next few years. Um, but even with that, I think ultimately – Novak is going to be the, the the ultimate goat of the game with with the most number of slam titles, um, and then you combine that with the fact that he he has an overall winning record against both Roger and Rafa. I, you know, I think he he's going to stand out, and he's going to be he's going to be ultimately the the goat of tennis. Wow, and you've opened up a can of worms because uh, being a broadcaster, I call... <laughs> uh, no, no a can, the can of worms is not what you're expecting because for me, I call them majors and not slams because a slam is four, okay. four wins in a row, right? Four majors in a, in a calendar year, right? So why are yeah, we, call, why well, are we calling the them slam. slams? That, 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 that's the slam. <laughs> I mean, each of the... Each of the individual tournaments is a grand slam. No, there it? it's a major. It's officially a major. Okay. No, okay, we're well, not going. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go with I'll go with you on that. Yeah, so yeah. we can call them major titles. Yeah. And, and no one's won the grand slam, but but again, <laughs> Novak came the closest of anyone for a long, long time. <laughs> oh, you're you're you're, you're generous at heart, Brad Stone. Thank you so much for giving us your your time uh, this evening. Your time. Uh, happy festive season. Maybe one day we'll see you in here in Auckland with Tommy Paul. Uh, I would love to be there. I haven't been to Auckland for a very long time. It's not a bad house, mate. Happy festive season. All right. You too. Take care. Brad Stein coaches Tommy Paul. Coach Jim Courier as well. It's 2.22. Are you with me on this one? Majors versus slams? Oh, he's just talking. He's just saying thank you to thank you to um, our guest Brad Stein. So, are sorry, you, what was that? Majors versus slams. A major is you win a major, right? A grand slam is winning four majors in a calendar year. But he he was calling them slams. Well, that's how I saw it. So, but do you believe it, or should it be a major? See, officially, it should be a major. I've had arguments with tennis journalists all over this all the time, but my good mate Robbie Koenig is with me on this one. Well, I guess you win, if you win all four slams, you win the Grand Slam. No, no, no. Oh, you see, you fell for it. You win all four majors, it's a Grand Slam. I've just never really heard it referred to as a major, so that's... Oh, that, no, because I think it's I think it's a television thing and a, and a, and a media thing. Let's just call them a slam. I really do. I honestly think there's there's no there's no foundation for it. And I'm sticking with it. It's 2.24. 2.28 on Sunday afternoon with Stephen McIver around Australia and New Zealand. Uh, in Australia, you can listen on the SEN app. And, and Ben and I are getting, well, we're going to self, self-serving self this afternoon. We both agree that we can play our favourite band and whatever song we choose, right? And mine's going to be my favourite New Zealand band, and we're going to play the songs. Because it's a Sunday afternoon and we can do what we want. Coming shortly, Marcus Armstrong on his move to... Uh, 
Chip Ganassi Racing, yeah, one of the top two teams in IndyCars. We're going to talk to Marcus after this. But this is a, a young band, uh, ex-St. Kent schoolboys, who are probably one of the hardest-working blokes I know. They're called Flaxies. It's F-L-A-X-X-I-E-S, Flaxies. And the last single they dropped was recommended by 660 of all places. And this is called Lot 61. Enjoy it. So that is Flaxies and Lot 61. You can check them out on Spotify. They're playing Rhythm and Alps. When Rhythm and Alps gets underway, I think they're on the 4 o'clock set and they're playing Luke's Kitchen and the Coromandel on New Year's Eve. So check them out on Spotify and get part of a good Kiwi band that write their own songs and are really smart lads as well. That's Flaxies. Oh, by the way, who, which band are you going to be uh, you know, treating us with before 5 o'clock? It's not a band. 
It's going to be a singer. A singer. Well, you can tell me because we're going to get people excited about it. So who's your favourite? I know it's not going to be Kiwi because at this moment I'm supporting a Kiwi band that I know is going to go a long way, but you are going to rock with? Well, everyone knows my uh, my artist that I've played on here the most is Paolo Nutini. Oh, Paolo. Good old Paolo. You played some the other, which I really liked. Yeah, but I want to play one of his older songs, and I, I think it's... I think it's probably it's a great song which is probably not appreciated, but I think it's incredibly powerful. Okay, and I, I and your fiance, your fiance, she's a surfer, right? She does. And, she, you, and you said you could listen to Flexies on the way to Murawai for a surf, right? I did. Okay, well, I'm, I'm taking that as a win. It's two thirty three. Check him out, Flexies on Spotify. Coming next, Marcus Armstrong. 2.37 with Stephen McIver and Ben Francis on your Sunday afternoon, the 11th day of December 2022 as we head into Christmas. Phew, don't know where the year's gone. Uh, the White Ferns chasing 181 for the win against Bangladesh at the Basin Reserve this afternoon. Bangladesh with 180 for 8 after 50 overs. Now, next year will be a huge year for young motor racer Marcus Armstrong out of Christchurch. He has had a couple of years in Formula 2, had a pretty strong 2022 with high-tech racing, but now he's making the shift to the ultra-competitive Indy cars. And no one's, people were talking about he's going to go, but no one picked it that he would end up at Chip Ganassi Racing. And I, I asked him earlier this week, he said, how long has that been on the bubble? Well, yeah, it's uh, it's very special. Um, finally, I can talk about it. So, I mean, it hasn't been that long uh, in the works, to be fair. Obviously, it hasn't really been a secret that I've wanted to join IndyCar. But, um, yeah, to join Chip Ganassi Racing, it's something extraordinary special. And it's an opportunity that I'm going to grab with both hands and absolutely push as hard as I can. So, yeah, I'm really grateful for this. Marcus, when you think about getting a leg up into what is probably one of the most competitive motor racing series in the world, you couldn't ask for a better leg up than being with Ganassi Racing. Have you toured the facilities yet and realised where you're at? Yes, I've been here. uh, Today was my first day on the job, and um, I'm obviously here in Indianapolis now, and uh, it's been a... It's been a busy day meeting everyone. There's a lot of people in this organization and I'm just starting to understand, you know, why they've been so successful in the past. And um, I'm looking forward to also chatting with Scott in in the next couple of days about it all. But so far, so good. And um, yeah, a special day. You recognize, though, that with going to a team like that, expectations will be rather large. Well, yes, I mean, that's what I want and that's what I've always hoped for you know I, I want to be at the front and at the pointy end and winning races and championships so um, they clearly give me a a fantastic chance of that and I have three very fast and experienced teammates as well to to help me hit the ground running um, because we don't have a lot of testing and um, yeah so I'm gonna have a lot of data to work with so that's really good as well. You've had a test in an IndyCar how brutish are they as opposed to the F2 cars you've been driving? Um, they're not massively dissimilar to F2 in the sense that the the general speed of the car is, is quite similar. But um, I'd noticed, you know, F2 is a bit more difficult to drive sideways. Um, so IndyCar likes to be driven sideways in, in the sense that, you know, you can feel it a lot easier and, 
and the tire can accept it as well without overheating so that's a real positive and um, as well the the engine is quite good uh, down low so good torque and that's that's quite an impressive that was one of my first impressions so um yeah i think it, obviously it's a different car but it's still the same philosophy as f2 are they a heavier car similar weights um f2 is very heavy actually and indycar as well with the new aero screen is fairly heavy so um again on that it's not so, not too dissimilar actually that's an interesting point your your, your first uh, impression of the aero screen warm very warm uh i obviously did the test in florida as well so it was uh sweaty inside that cockpit that day <laughs> Uh, the interesting thing about uh, the tyres, and uh, Scott McLaughlin said the one thing in his first two years, and you know, is that you really got to get the tyre and qualifying right because conditions change so quickly, and and with with the compounds that you're using, is that something that you'll be focusing on or are aware of? It's certainly something that I've had to focus on in the past couple of years in F2. Tire management and managing the temperature of the tyre is one of the fundamental keys of the championship. So. Coming to IndyCar, I mean, I'd like to hope that um, I have that experience, that base knowledge about tyres. And saying that, it's a completely different tyre, different compounds and construction and all the rest of it. So it's something that I'll need to learn. Um, but I agree, you know, with Scott's comments, because it, going into a qualifying situation, you don't have many laps. You need to sort of um, be in the right window and have the right philosophy from the go. What excites you about IndyCar, Marcus? Oh, do you, I mean, how much time do you have? I got all, I got all the time in the world, I, uh, pal. You tell me. Uh, well, the thing I've always loved about IndyCar from a young age is how the car is always moving. And you can, even from the TV, you can see just how brutal the car is and that you can actually push the entire race um, for the most part. Whereas, I mean, not to badmouth F2, but you certainly need a lot of tire management, which takes the fun out of it a bit. So that is very attractive to me. The car is um, an animal. And then obviously the competition itself is is fierce. I mean, there's so many well-established drivers in this championship. They've, um, you know, many older guys as well. So, um, you know, Scott, for example, I think is 42 and... There's a few guys over 40, which sort of adds to the whole vibe of the championship, that it's a professional championship. And, um, yeah, as well, it's in America. It's a different culture, and um, that's something that excites me too. Yeah, I get the impression you want to be an elbows-out sort of guy because the likes of Romain Grosjean and Marcus Ericsson have come in, Ericsson winning the Indy 500, and have been elbows-out, but are sometimes criticised for that approach. Are you aware of that? And but will you be an elbows out sort of guy? Well, it's something that we all wish for a bit more in Europe because, I mean, in Europe you get a penalty for, for you know, breathing. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so in a way, it's actually quite cool because you can race and um, you can you have a lot more freedom on that side. Obviously. I've I've watched indie races before where you know the boundaries are pushed to the limit on that side, but um, yeah, I mean you need to you need to push hard, and that's part of competition. 
was it a deliberate move because the signing is relatively late uh, not to do ovals? No, I would love to do ovals, honestly. And um, I mean, this year it's not going to happen, but in the future, it's something that I definitely want to do. Um, again, it's a completely different thing and I haven't done it before, but it's something that I'd be starting from ground zero. I'd have a, a very um, open perspective on it, seeing as though I've never done it before. So that'll be quite exciting in the future. Um, but yeah, so to answer your question, I'm very open to it. So it was never in the discussion. The ovals were never part of the discussion with this contract. Not this one, not this year. And um, look, we'll, we'll see how, how it how it goes throughout the year. But um, yeah, I, I like the idea of doing it, definitely. Let's let's take a step back and talk about your time in F two. Uh, you've tra- I've, we've spoken a couple of times both here on radio and on television, and you've you've matured. You've changed a hell of a lot. What have you noticed about yourself as a driver and as an individual that's changed in that in that furiously political F two environment in Europe? Formula two is very competitive and. I mean, it's, it's obviously this, it's the championship below Formula One. So um, I, I've learned a lot over the course of the last three years. And I'm grateful for the opportunity because I'm a far better driver now than I was. And it's taught me a lot also about how to work with, you know, different personalities and different teams and different nationalities because I've been in three different teams. So I think on that side, I've learned a lot. And um, F2 is all about preparation, really, because you get so little track time that, I mean, we're talking about it today at the factory, how ridiculous it is that I only got about eight laps before qualifying in free practice. So, um, you know, that that means preparation is key. You need to arrive to the race knowing exactly what you want to do on car setup and what you want to do for a driving approach. So um, I think it's taught me a lot on that side, and I hope that it, it puts me in a good place to to start this indie indie car championship in the right way. As a young boy growing up, it would have been all about F one. That's not going to happen at this point in in your career. Does it feel like wasted time, or is it just disappointing that it didn't pan out the way you would have loved it to have panned out? Definitely not wasted time. I've I've enjoyed every minute of the last eight years, you know, in Europe. So. Uh, I, I moved there when I was 13, so um, it's been, you know, close to the majority portion of my life has been chasing this F1 dream. And um, I've met some fantastic people along the way, and they've um, helped me a lot. And, and you know, even now in America, they'll continue to help me in, in one way or another. So, um, and then that's not even to mention the driving side, because uh, I've learned a lot competing against guys who have gone on to race in formula one and yes i'll i'll always regret the fact that i didn't make it but um yeah i mean um it is how it is it is yeah it it is what it is i remember talking to scotty mack and he he was saying as soon as he went to america the vibe was bang on from the get-go it was like it was almost a bit like being in australia new zealand everybody's pretty chilled but they're all racers yeah, definitely. I've, uh, people are very sociable here. That's the feeling I've got. Um, and I always sort of knew that because, you know, the, 
obviously I'm still learning, so I can't exactly put a definitive answer to the question, but um, everyone's very open and they want to help each other. And that is something that really agrees with me. Home for Christmas at all? Oh yeah, I'm coming back home on uh, Friday. So get ready for me. I'm going to annoy you. <laughs> Gee, thanks. Will you will you will you have time to uh maybe catch up around the uh, TRS series at all or not? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm just going to be cruising around. If you want to come over for a coffee, I'll fire up the coffee machine. <laughs> mate, I, <laughs> mate, I'll be on on track in the TRS series in January. When how long, I mean, how long are you home for? There's there's the question. Uh, I don't actually know, um, but I will come to a TRS race just to see you. So don't worry. <laughs> you're you're a good man. Just one final <laughs> thought before before I let you go. Uh, do you have realistic expectations about IndyCar in 2023? Realistic expectations? Is there another word for that? Maybe. Okay. What do you want to do in 23? How's that? Yeah, that's better. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, uh, I want to, firstly, I just want to perform as well as I can straight away because that's going to be important to me is just, as I said, hitting the ground running and, and being at the sharp end. I know that this team is uh, well established and they're going to give me everything, all the resources in order to perform. So, um, look, I want to be up the front and, um, yeah, competing uh, at the pointy end. Mate, uh, really excited for you, like genuinely excited for you because you're going to one hell of a championship. Happy Christmas, safe travels home, and I'll catch you on the tracks in the summer. Awesome. Thank you for having me. 254, you're also listening through SEN in Australia on the app. Uh, welcome to you into the Sunday afternoon here in New Zealand. It's 254 with Stephen McIver and Ben Francis. The World MMA Awards were held uh, in the past week and City, Kickbo- City Kickboxing was named Gym of the Year. Surprise, surprise. Uh, no surprise that Eugene Behrman was named Coach of the Year and the International for the Fighter of the Year, who pretty much works out of uh, City Kickboxing, was Alexander Volkanovsky. So once again, uh, Kiwis leading the way in the world of combat sports uh, today of course being at UFC 282 as well at the Basin Reserve uh, the White Ferns are chasing 181 for the win uh, currently at the crease uh, Divine at 7 not out Bates 5 not out uh, they need another 165 off 47 overs that was a hell of a total that Bangladesh put up as well I remember talking to the, the White Ferns coach a couple of weeks back and he was saying you know we were working on 160 being a very defendable target so 100 181 uh, is going to be a really good chase for the White Ferns. Currently, currently, what did I say? Uh, 12 without loss. Divine on seven and Bates on five. So that's a lot to look forward to, as is talking to Dale Budge after three o'clock, the GM of sport and communications for the Auckland Tuatara baseball team who had a shocking couple of weeks because they've had another washout. They were set to play the Melbourne Aces this weekend at North Harbour Stadium. That's been a bit of a washout. So we'll talk to talk to him about that and also we'll talk to Justin Nelson about the breakers uh, fell to the Sydney Kings on Thursday night at Spark Arena second time they've lost to them at Spark Arena but they're still running second of the championship and do look a real contender all that coming your way after three here on SEN and SENZ just gone three o'clock here on a Sunday afternoon with Stephen McCarver and Ben Francis's all-time ringtone 
the Ferrellis, the Ferrellis, and uh, Chelsea Dagger, which you hear at any PDC, uh, which is pretty pretty cool event. That's the darts events. Uh, takes me back to uh, doing the uh, World Series in Auckland and also Hamilton this year as well. You got to love it, right? I mean, when you talk about uh, involvement in team sport, that's that's the one that gets you going, right? Oh, they they do some very good. The PDC do some very good Christmas adverts as well. And oh, did you see the one with uh, John McDonald and Russ Bray? Russ Bray uh, about getting a, a choir and a church to sing the, the, ca- carols about. Yeah, so that was the latest one they did, uh, and that was just, that was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I know, it, and it is just so much fun. Actually, what if Dale Budge, who is the GM of uh, Sport and Community, what did I say, GM of Communications and Sport at the Dawkins Tour Atari? Have you been to the darts, Dale? No, I got to play with Michael Van Gerwen. Oh, uh, comes in hot. Yeah. <laughs> it was some, I don't know, I was run through the TAB from memory. And, That's right. Um, somehow ended up uh, playing some, some group darts with, uh, with the stars of the world. It was, it was pretty cool. They were, Comparisons running around about the way he looks and the way I look. So, yeah, uh, well, it's only only because you both follicly <laughs> challenged, right? That's we we understand we understand that part. But I suppose when you're up against individuals like MVG, uh, you, you you sort of revel in their skill. That's what a lot of people a lot of people fail to understand, right? Oh, unreal! Yeah, like seriously, it's just just embarrassing standing there, uh, you know, sharing sharing the same stage with with those guys. I mean, that yeah. That, do it for a living and um, you know, make the rest of us look like idiots in the pub. So, um, yeah. good, 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 fun, good bunch of guys, and man, yeah, the bounce looks like a, a lot of fun. And, and that's why it is such, I think. I think they connect with so many people, right? And I think that's the most important thing about it. Let's talk about the Auckland Turatara. Uh, to use a really bad cliche, weather's not playing ball for you in the last uh, couple of series against the Sydney Blue Sox and now the Melbourne Aces. What's going on? Yeah, we haven't uh, haven't had any fortune with the Auckland weather gods, that's for sure. Yeah, whole series essentially washed out. We managed to get two and a bit innings in yesterday in, I think, what was technically the opening game of the series. But, um, yeah, the weather won the weekend. So we sit back now. I think what will happen is both teams will be awarded two wins, two losses. So just basically split the series. Oh. A little bit tricky with how they, hand, how they handle that, yeah, whether it becomes simply a 36-game regular season for ourselves in Melbourne or whether they actually hand out a couple of wins and a couple of losses each to, to make it even with the rest of the league. So, yeah, we're still uh, still working through that. I think the rule book says half a game each, so um, we'll see how that plays out. Do you think that can, could affect you long-term? Not really. Um, I think it probably affects Melbourne a little bit more. We, we've obviously got off to a reasonable start, so, um, you know, we're, we hold a playoff position as it stands, so splitting a series against the defending champs, albeit that we didn't get to actually duke it out on the, on the diamond is not the end of the world. We, we sort of maintain, um, you know, a couple of the other, other rivals have sort of lost some ground. And, um, Melbourne, who had a slow start, but we know they're, you know, they're a pretty handy outfit um, yeah, at the beginning of the season. If someone had said, hey, you take a 2-2 series split with Melbourne, you'd probably say, yeah, we'll grab that, thanks. So... Not the end of the world for us, just frustrating for fans, frustrating for everyone that we can't play baseball. You know, we're competitors, we want to play, and that um, great challenge, you want to lift and play against the best. So just frustrating we had to sit there and watch it rain uh, at North Harbour Stadium over the last couple of days. So in this particular situation where you are splitting, let's just say splitting the, the series, as opposed to the Sydney Blue Stocks, Sox where you were well in, well entrenched in the series, and I think you were leading 2-1, weren't you? Uh, and you're in the yeah. game and the fourth 
a match of the sorry game of the series and, and leading in that as well, weren't you? With what you were three 0 top bottom of the fourth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so five five completed innings constitutes a game. So obviously, any any completed games uh, are deemed finished, and you know the standings are you know the standings are impacted um, based on those results. The, that final game against the Blue Sox that you talk about, because we go back to Sydney next week and play against the Blue Sox in what would be an away series, the first thing we do is finish off that that game that was un, you know, incomplete in Auckland. So we'll start whatever it was, bottom of the fourth. Basically, three more outs. Um, we've got a three-run lead there, so assuming we get the three outs without conceding, you know, three or more runs, um, that'll, that'll be chalked up as a win. And then we start the, the Sydney Bay series from uh-huh. that point. But Melbourne being in the other division, we don't play Melbourne again, so there is no allocated time where we could catch up some games. Obviously, missing four as opposed to you know missing half a game, a little bit harder to fit into the schedule. So officially. The ABL could force the two teams to play somewhere. There is a little bit of a window around the Christmas period, so it is potentially possible that we end up playing that series at a later date. But just given the the cost of travel, I mean, I, I think the travel bill to get Melbourne over here was something like forty thousand dollars. So cheap as creepers. Significant cost. Yeah, it's just hey, who's who's it. paying that bill? By the way, is it the league or the teams themselves? The league. The league pays it, but obviously all the teams pay an entry fee. So yeah. the whole idea is it's to split the cost evenly. So Auckland and Perth being that further away rather than the Eastern Seaboard of Australia, it just it just balances the costs out. But um, I mean, in anyone's language, it's a lot of money. So our best guess is that we won't play the make-up games anywhere. It'll just be deemed series finished, no result, or we'll give half a point to each. I think that's what the rules state is. It's, it's half a game each. Essentially, split it two-two. Okay, uh, your background of this is, is we, we, we've known each other for, for many years. We first met in, in, in the rugby league, in the rugby league world, and, and now you're a gem of, of, of sport and communications at baseball. Where did, this, where did this love of baseball come from? What drew you towards it? Uh, I think being the paid TV generation, you know, I'd come home from school in the, in the 90s when Sky TV came about, and um, the west coast of uh, the United States, you had the 7 o'clock um, local time baseball games on telly, which was perfect for us coming home from school and clicking on the TV. And sort of got into it, you know, I was a bit of, bit of a fan watching on, on TV and then uh, played cricket, rugby growing up, had the opportunity to, to play some baseball um, in my late 20s, sort of found it in my mid to late 20s and really enjoyed the, the baseball experience. Just wish I'd sort of found it as a, as a youngster and, and grown up with the sport. Um, you know, played here club baseball domestically and um, got to play with a few of the guys that are still floating around with the, the Tuatara now. They were teenagers when I was playing and um, you know, we were crying out for that next step, something be it, you know, either a fully fledged Kiwi player making it to the majors and sort of opening doors and, and introducing the sport to mainstream New Zealand or this route, which was a, a professional team based in Auckland playing in the Australian competition and so uh, Ryan Flynn Made all of that possible a few years ago with uh, with the help of the board at the time, Baseball New Zealand, and uh, a couple of uh, benefactors that were um, keen to see the sport take that next step. And you know, now it's a reality. You know, remember winning a couple of national titles as part of a team here in front of maybe a hundred of our friends and family <laughs> watching in the stand, thinking this is the particular baseball. And here we are a few years later, four and a half thousand people watching the the Tuatara play. And, um, you know, just just amazing to see. People buy into it like they have. Yeah, and, and the growth of the the growth of the sport is imperative, right? And 
sadly you've been given a helping hand in, in some ways. Did you ever play softball? I did school. I, yeah. I played, played softball at school like I guess most, most Kiwis did and, and enjoyed it, you know, enjoyed the challenges. And, you know, they're obviously very similar sports. Certainly the participation level, obviously, as you get a little more towards the, the um, high-performance end, everything um, sort of narrows and there are some stark differences between the two sports. But, you know, the fundamentals are essentially very similar, aren't they? Do, do you think the time is ripe now, considering the, the Black Sox had a horrible world, world campaign, finishing eighth at home. I think it's the first time they've performed like that at home ever in their history. And, and this is not about them and us, but it is about the promotion of your sport. Do you think that plays into your hand somewhat, that you are involved in a professional league where softball you know, is, is semi-pro in the States anyway and completely amateur here pretty much? Do you think that plays into your hand if the Tuatara can perform and get a, and get results and st- sit up there? Yeah, potentially. I mean, it's a bit of a sad indictment on sport, really, isn't it? When we, so that we went disappointed, you know, like we, to what a bishop was the part of the Tuatara's for the last two seasons. Obviously, he's not with us this year, but you know, we, we have a great relationship. He'll always be welcome um, in, in our clubhouse and, and with our guys. And you know, who knows? Depending on how the season plays out, we may yet see him in a Tuatara uniform, but. Yeah, he was part of that Black Sox campaign. We had some of our, our young up-and-coming players that you know, grown up playing both sports. And, you know, we were certainly cheering on. We were actually really hoping to get along um, the business end of the tournament and, and see them as a, as a team and cheer them on as a team. And Unfortunately, that didn't happen. We feel for them. You know, it sucks. You know, any, any Kiwi sports team that doesn't achieve you know, their goals or their dreams, it's, it's tough and you know, we, we sympathise with them. Yeah, it's, it's, what does that do for the sport of baseball? I guess potentially... Um, the ramifications for that. I, I hope that um, the funding avenues don't change overnight as a result of, of one one tournament. I mean, it's, that's sport. It happens. I mean, you know, look what we've seen at the FIFA World Cup over the last few weeks and some of the upsets there. Um, you know, that's why we play sport. There's no guarantees based on rankings or expectations. So, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd encourage people to play sport. I don't think you have to pick and choose at a young age. You can do it at an elite level, and um, yeah, maybe there's. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think it's been long overdue that Sport New Zealand looks at their high performance funding model. Whether they've got that spot on, I'm, I'm not sure they have. I think you look at the best sportsmen that New Zealand has produced in recent times, and the things they're doing around the world. Most of them have done it without the support of Sport New Zealand. Stephen Adams, you know, Chris Wood in the Premier League the motor racing superstars that we have around the world who are absolutely global global stars but have done it all off their own bat without Sport New Zealand's assistance. And how many more Kiwis are out there that potentially could have gone down that route had they had the same opportunities and had Sport NZ you know, potentially open some, some pathways there? I think we do need to have that conversation. I'm not sure whether it's a softball versus baseball thing, but I think it's certainly something we need to um, have, a, have a look at. From a participation standpoint, totally different. I yeah, I mean, are you suggesting the mandate of Sport New Zealand might have to change as to what its true role is? Yeah, I think that's always been the issue. I mean, they every time for, for years and years they announced their funding. Um, you know, whatever time of the year it was, I think it was sort of late so this time of year, it was, wasn't it? Um, and you'd sort of sit there and go, oh, well, according to the criteria, that's why we've done this and that's why we've done that. And I just sort of, you know, I look at it and think, you know, I know we've had one out of the box and Dan Messer Carrington with kayaking, but does that sport, you know, it, you know it's, it's horrible when you're comparing apples and apples, it feels like you're putting another sport down, but does that sport 
need the amount of money that it gets for its funding because one out-of-the-box superstar changed the landscape, or would that money be better off spent in another area, which is a sport that, you know, basketball, for example, which is a sport that, you know, New Zealand does care about, and that could have a, a significant impact I know what you're saying because I think I think you, you you do have to ask the question, don't you? That is their mandate based on historical sports rather than what's actually going on and what kids are watching. Oh, and, look, it's, and it's easy for me to say as a you know someone who's now approaching middle age, white middle class male, the pace are changing. You know, my my son's interests are far different to what my interests were at the same stage, and. Now, unfortunately, that it as people my age or above control the purse, purse strings. I just wonder, you know, with MMA and, um, and mm. just the way sports go, basketball, baseball to a lesser degree, but certainly basketball, MMA, um, esports, non-sports, some of the things that are, you know, perhaps weren't as important to our generation or our parents' generation are going to be a lot more important to the next generation coming through. And I, I think we kind of need to be ahead of the curve and feel we're chasing it at the moment. And so that opens up a question line for you. What are the Tuatara doing to promote baseball at that level, that, that school school boy and girl level? It's been a real challenge, to be honest. Um, just the, the onset of COVID has, has had a massive mm. impact on all sport, not just, not just baseball, but all team sport. And so the growth that I think we all hoped would be there with um, the addition of a professional team here has just been halted because of, you know, I mean, last year, I actually played club baseball last year, right old age of 40, and, and um, thought I'd, I'd get a bit of a, a, a run around, and geez, we didn't get a lot of baseball in, obviously there were the lockdowns on the um, pre-Christmas, so basically it worked out the entire first half of the, of the season, and then second half of the summer was just disjointed with, you know, some people not committing, they'd already missed the start of the season, so, you know, why bother, and a lot of that sort of stuff, and I'm sure that is replicated across all sports, it's not just baseball, but I don't think we've had a true indication of you know whether there is a big impact with the pro team. Um, what are we doing? You know, we're obviously trying to partner with, with Baseball New Zealand, New Zealand who own 48% of the, the Tuatara to try and grow the sport here. We're, um, the, we're actually just in the throes of putting together a, a, a trial game uh, that we'll run this week before the team departs to Sydney with some of the better local players to get a chance to come along and throw live to our pro hitters. Um, some of the, the guys that didn't get a whole lot of work, well, none of them obviously got a whole lot of work, but the guys that need a little bit of extra innings, they'll throw a few few pitches to some of the, the local players, give them an opportunity, and then it just filters down. You know, we need to be training our coaches so that our coaches can go back into the local competitions and improve the standards there. Um, there's, yeah, there's, there's definitely some um, plans in place to try and do that, but I just don't think we've really seen or had enough time to embed that in and to, to actually see a... Um, a response or reaction to it. People that don't understand, you have been around major sports like rugby league and also supercars. Are you finding that you're involved in a niche sport and struggling to get the attention and the media that you require? Uh, yes and no. Yes, because I guess it is a niche sport and it's not a sport that New Zealanders have been overly familiar with over a long period of time. A lot of people still see it as, as an American sport mm. rather than I guess understanding how big it is through Asia and Central America, it's not just the US that, you know, where baseball's popular, it is a major global sport. Um, oh, we've, we're absolutely de- delighted with the media attention our organisation's had, particularly this year. I mean, gee, sports media, I think, you know, we had two years in the wilderness, obviously, with COVID, and 
think the first press release I sent out, um, you know, as we were sort of coming back in, about 75% of the emails we had on our mailing list came back from people that obviously no longer work in those positions from when we were last there two years ago. So, <laughs> yeah, the, the game's changed, you know that, um, and it's, it's impacted a lot of people. But, um, yeah, we, we're absolutely delighted. We've had a you know a really good run with, with media coverage. The major media networks have done a fantastic job um, supporting us and, and supporting what we're trying to do. And certainly can't use that as an excuse. You know, we, we have had a lot of support from, from media. But, yeah, it, it, is, it has its challenges. Obviously, when the Warriors came into the competition in 1995, there was already a, an appetite, I guess, for you know professional rugby league in New Zealand or a fully pro team based out of Auckland. Um, I'm not sure that you could say that the baseball community is anywhere near big enough to support a professional team. So we have to obviously try and cater for the, the baseball community, but we need to grow and expand on that, and it needs to be much, much bigger than just the baseball community. So a lot of the decisions we make, the way we I guess, promote the game and um, the fan experience, and and I'm going to jump in here because yeah. I'm told the fan experience is a good family one, and that's important. We we have to be more than sport. Like we're just we're not going to compete with pro rugby, pro rugby league, pro netball. You know, we're just we're just not at that level. So we have to do things differently. And you know, we based a lot of minor league baseball. Spent a bit of time. Um, regular CEOs you now had two seasons going up, having a look at some minor league baseball to see how they operate. So. In that American market, you're talking about, you know, it's not far to go and see a major league team play, the best baseball players in the world playing major league baseball. So why would you then go watch minor league baseball? How do minor league baseball teams continue to operate and be sustainable? And for them, it's all about community and a night out. It's an experience. It's more than baseball. So you have to have some of that quirky stuff where you come along for, yeah, you, know, you watch some baseball, obviously, and you see some competitive players on the up or older players that are on their, their way out of the game that have done great things. But you have to give the fans an experience and a reason to want to come back, and you know that's what we've tried to do. Obviously, have to do it on a budget here. It's, you know, we're establishing something, so there's not a lot of marketing or budget to spend on, you know, fireworks and, and whatnot. But we have a good time. We give away a whole lot of uh, sponsor product and um, play some silly games. And you know, the fans that have been turning up have really enjoyed it and embraced it. And so we'll keep going with that philosophy as long as it works. But yeah, we. I think fun and fun is good was the little motto that we have internally about you know, making sure that we're more than just baseball. Yeah, no, and I and I and you are so right about the the fan experience and a lot of sports, even some of the ones you have been talking about, uh, could learn from that. As an individual, the challenge for you as a, a GM of sport and communications and and trying to promote the sport, how how much fun has that been for you? Oh, man, it's been a challenge the last two years, for sure. You know, and a lot of nights where you you honestly question whether we would make it back. Um, you know, when we made, that was a really tough call to sit out, you know, because we, we had the opportunity to go and base ourselves in Australia, much like the, the Breakers and the Phoenix um, and the Warriors did. Um, the difference there is there was a um, you know significant pay TV deal, uh, or broadcast deal that the leagues, mm. respective leagues, got that flowed on. And, you know, there was a funding model where... Warriors wanted to, they had to go and play in Australia. Well, it wasn't like that. You know, we we had to, it was going to cost us a lot more money to play, and we would save money by sitting out. So we made the tough call to not go, and that was difficult because at the end of the day we're competitors. We like playing sport. That's why we do this. And it was it was a risky move, but one that we're, we're absolutely convinced was the right thing to do. Um, but at the time we thought, look, it's one season. You know, we've got a bit of momentum. Yeah, we're taking a bit of a pause, but we'll be back the following season. And we'll get straight into planning for it. And ultimately what happened is COVID hung around and wiped the whole season 
all took a pause the following year. So what went from being one season off became two seasons off, and then you lose a lot of momentum. So a lot of even the players, you know, we've had to look at different players to come back the following year because it's just a natural progression of, of careers. You know, the, the players that were there are a little bit older now. Some of them aren't going to be able to, you know, to come back. Some of them retired. Um, so just, it, yeah, there were plenty of plenty of days where we wondered would we ever get back to the diamond with the Tuatara ever play a professional game of baseball again and it was a lot of hard work to, to try and make it make it through and you know it was a lot of emotion around that, that first game when the team arrived firstly arrived here in New Zealand this year and assembled and then went to Brisbane um, there were a few of us watching on TV back here that were, were a little bit emotional that night and yeah it's it's, um, it's awesome that's why we do this right it's, yeah. it's about yeah. sport about it's... challenges and um, yeah it was, it, you, know, you get Days that are horrible, and you question what you're doing with your life choices, and other days where you're incredibly rewarding. I ring a young player to say, "Hey, got some great news, mate. Go and um, pack your bags. You're going to Brisbane for a, for a trip. Your first ever professional contract. That's incredibly rewarding." Yeah. You ring a, a young Kiwi you've seen as a 16-year-old running around um, and progress to become a fully-fledged professional is pretty cool. Sounds to me like you've got your philosophy right. Do you have a good feeling about the Tuatara this season? Yeah, okay. I mean, look, there'll be challenges. There's some really good teams out there. Brisbane, obviously, the division rivals continue to win. It'd be good if they had a, a rough week or two just to get us back in the, in, the, in the division fight there. But, I mean, yeah, we, we're, in, we're in a playoff spot as it stands. Um, this is in our own hands. We've done the hardest trips. We've played the two best division rivals away from home already. Yes, we've got to play them again at home. But we've done that. We've done the big, long trip to Perth, which is obviously always a big challenge. So two more short-haul flights to the eastern seaboard to go. And... and um, Fingers crossed, three more home series without weather interruptions. and um, We'll string some momentum together, hopefully, when we can play back-to-back series here in New Zealand and the, uh, around the change of the year. Always a pleasure having a chat with you, mate. Go get him. Oh, thanks, Stephen. I really appreciate your support, as I said. You're more than welcome. Dale Budge, GM Sporting Communication, the Auckland Tuatara Series against the Melbourne Aces, washed out to be confirmed whether or not that is just going to be split in that series. But they go the 16th of December to resume their competition against the Sydney Blue Sox, which, by the way, the original game uh, began on Sunday, November the 22nd, lasted at the bottom of the fourth. Auckland were leading 3 at the time. There was a one-out and 0-2 count, and a man, uh, Kevin Rodriguez, on third base, and Sue Wei Lin was at the plate, and they were leading the series as well. And then they will play the four-game series against Sydney. So, But, uh, Ben, can I just say, listening to the, the philosophical way they're dealing with who they are as a team, it's got the hallmarks of being a very solid foundation for an organisation. I think it probably has to have that, especially to survive what it's gone through. And as Dale touched on, you know, there were doubts that they would even come back. You know, there were doubt, there's doubts around players. There were only anticipated that one season off, and it changed to two. And it's literally for a franchise that was already new. It literally was like starting all over again. Unlike the Warriors, for example, who probably who have been around a lot longer, have had that foundation, who have already got that fan base there, who, regardless of however long they're gone, will probably still have. Yeah, and he made the the other key point, of course, the fact that there was TV money involved and the the NRL in the case of the Warriors uh, spent a lot of money and they should have and so they should have to make sure that the Warriors were in that comp to keep that comp running. Now I like I like your style. It's three twenty five. We'll we'll talk basketball shortly as well. 
328 with Stephen McCarvey. Just an update from the Basin Reserve. Bangladesh sets the White Ferns a target of 181 to win off the 50 overs in their first one-day international. A couple of wickets have just fallen uh, for the White Ferns. Sophie Devine, 21 off 24. And uh, just moments, well, not too far ago, Amelie Kerr, uh, dark off one and facing one ball. So they are currently 52 for two in the 11th over, 52 for two, the White Ferns. Uh, chasing 181, which is not so flash. After four o'clock this afternoon, we're going to talk to former All-White uh, Fred De Jong about what's been going on in the World Cup, which has been absolutely crazy. When you think uh, Brazil are gone, uh, they went out 4-2 in penalties against Croatia. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, conjecture about whether or not Neymar will continue on after this because he's never won a World Cup. He's been, been out, uh, he's 30 years of age, right? And they're saying, well, is his, is his window slowly closing? Uh, and he was quoted as saying, uh, honestly, I don't know what's going to happen. It's hard to talk about it right now. It would be hasty to come here and say that this is it, but I can't guarantee anything. I have to take my time, some time to think about it. Quote, I'm not closing any doors, but I'm also not saying 100% that I want to be back. But I think once emotion sets in and we know how much football is a religion, uh, you, never, you never can tell. And the Ronaldo, well, we're not going there. It's half past three. 3.34 on a Sunday afternoon, the 11th day of December 2022 on a Sunday here at SENZ and SEN. If you're listening on the app in Australia, time to talk some b-ball, most notably the NBL with uh, Justin Nelson, a good friend who knows more about basketball than I will know in a lifetime. He joins me right now. Happy Sunday, mate. Hey, thank you. Happy Sunday to you too. I've actually been walking the, the streets and the waterfront of, of Wellington today. Beautiful day in the capital. Uh, it's always good when we get a chance to talk about how beautiful it is here. So, yeah, wonderful Sunday. Is this is this uh, getting rid of a hangover after the Guns N' Roses show? Or? <laughs> Just about. Gee, I went to that on, uh, on Thursday night here in Wellington, and they put me to shame, those guys. I think Axel Rose is 60, Slash is 57, Duff McKagan's 58, and they stayed on stage till... For what three and a half hours? And wow! Yeah, I tell you what, I hope I'm still doing that at their age. Quite amazing. I, I, and and all the social that I look at, all they're doing is talking about how good Slash is. Always see is just Slash out there in the front. Was did it feel like that? Oh yeah, he's a magician. There's no doubt about that. When you you watch him go about his work and his craft, and you know, I just said he's 57. He's also got a pacemaker. <laughs> So it's uh, it's quite incredible. Yeah, wonderful show, quite amazing. Sellout? About 25,000 people there at Sky Stadium on, on Thursday night. And look, those guys, it felt like they didn't want to go home. It really did. I don't think they got off stage till about quarter past 11. They're clearly very lonely people, mate, because <laughs> they just did not want to go home. Well, maybe it's just they 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 they're probably happy that they can still get a crowd of twenty five thousand a little place like New Zealand, and they'd still appreciate what they did because they were monsters at their prime, right? They were they were one of these stadium acts. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, you head back to the nineties, and do you remember when they were touring Australia back in the nineties? And I think the last time I saw them was at a round of the V eight supercars in Sydney, which was about 20, 2010, 2011, mm. something like that, and. Yeah, look, they're, they're one of the big uh, big stadium acts. And obviously those bands out of the 80s and 90s, they certainly know how to tour and how to put on a great show in, in huge stadiums and arenas. And Thursday night was no different. Oh, well, you're a happy man then. Are you happy with the way the breakers are rolling? They're 11-5 and five after playing 16 and uh, losing for the second time at home against the Kings. Are the Kings their kryptonite? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, it's quite. It's interesting. I mean, well, you and I spoke a, a couple of weeks ago, and you know, we're singing the praises of the breakers, and, and rightfully so. And I think at the time we were talking about their big test would be when they lose a couple. Well, guess what? We catch up a couple of weeks later, and they have lost a couple, two losses in a row at, at home to Perth and to Sydney. Second loss this season to the Sydney Kings, who are the top team, and. Yeah, maybe they are the kryptonite. Um, who knows? There's still a long way to play out, but a fair bit to go back to the drawing board with for the breakers now. Okay, so all right, you've opened the door. What do they need to? What are, what are they? Where are they, where are they showing signs of weakness? Well, I think the first thing is don't panic. I, I think that quite often you can cop a couple of losses and you try and tip everything upside down and rip it all apart and start again. I, I think the first thing for the breakers is don't panic. Uh, just get back to some of the little things that were working and. Sometimes you have games where you shoot well and, and sometimes you know you find yourself in a position where the opposition shoots well. And I think in the last two games against uh, the Wildcats and then obviously the Kings, I think both of those teams have come out and had outstanding games. Certainly Perth were on the ropes. You know, we know that there was a little bit of byplay before that game with, with Corey Webster and, you know, that game belonged to Perth and good on them. And look, the Kings are probably the team to beat. I mean, they have taken care of business against the Breakers twice here in New Zealand. Uh, the first time, you know, their their star, uh, you know, Xavier Cooks, he went down injured. This time he played the whole game and the Breakers did come home late. They came home strongly. Uh, the signs are still good for the Breakers. You know, if anything, I wouldn't tip everything upside down at mm. the moment based on a couple of losses. They just need to get back to hitting their shots, playing a bit better defence, and I'm sure... They'll return to the winner's circle really soon. Well, you talk about heading their shots and just looking at the table right now. They're the best offensive team scoring-wise yep. in the league. But, and they're probably a little bit too high when it comes to conceding points. But, uh, I mean, who who do, who do you think of their big guns needs to just reset? Oh, I think it really comes down to all of them. I mean, one thing that I love about the Breakers this season is it's a real team effort. It's, it's one-in-all-in mentality. And that's what has led them to the start that they've had. I mean, on the road... They've been quite exceptional yeah. away from home. If anything, it's just their home record that hasn't been to the level that they would have liked. I mean, their losses are actually coming on their home floor. So there's a little bit of work to do, but it is a one-in-all-in approach, and that is one of the things that has really endeared them to the fans this season. Does it feel like they're back, and you talk about that home thing, do you, do you feel like they're back to where they were when they won three championships? Oh, probably a little bit too early to say that. I mean, there's not, not too many no, teams. No, I'm not suggesting. No, I'm not. No, no, I'm not. I'm, no, no. Don't get me wrong. Don't, don't, don't hammer me yet. I'm, I'm suggesting that that vibe, that vibe, you know, that that home feel, and you know that they're they are, people are embracing them again. Well, I think so. I think what people have really loved about the Breakers this season is just that real gritty, you know, nose to the grindstone approach that they've had. That. You know, even when they are having a bad patch in a game, and every team goes through a bad patch in every game, it just happens. I mean, you don't hold momentum, or very rarely will you hold momentum for every second of play, you know, through a game of basketball. So I think there's a lot to like about that. I mean, the other thing is, there's some genuine, you know, Kiwi talent that is coming through the ranks and starting to shine. You know, certainly Izzy Liafa has had a, a wonderful season so far, and you know, if nothing else, you know, fans of the Breakers really endear themselves to that local Kiwi content. And, you know, it, it, certainly not to, to sink the boots into the Breakers, but it felt like they'd gone away from that a little bit over the last few years. And it's something that they really have got back to this year. And that's uh, that's definitely a good sign for the fans. 
couple of things have come out of this last match against the Kings. First of all, hell of a foul count, 21-8 and eight against the Breakers. Warranted? Well, when you listen to the Kings and what they had to say post-game, they actually yeah. thought that that was a little bit light on. They, they, they actually came out, you know, Chase Buford came out and said, he felt like his his team had gone into battle against the All Blacks. Yeah. Such was the physicality of the game. So if you listen to the Kings, they think the foul count should have been even heavier against the Breakers. One of the things about foul counts in basketball is when you look at the numbers, you know the team that invariably has more fouls caught against them tends to complain. But the fact is, if you foul more, you're going to get picked up for more fouls. So quite often we can get lost in the numbers. Is it warranted? Well, it was a pretty physical game. So, yep, maybe it was. Yeah, I was intrigued. Well, not intrigued. I was gratified to see Modi Mayor coming in saying, well, you know, we'll just be accountable for what we do. But it was a, a slight swipe, I think, too, at the officials who have a bit of an issue because Barry Brown Jr. has allegedly accused one of them of cheating. So yeah. and that's not a good look. What do you think the fallout will be? Will he be made an example of and miss the next trip to Perth? Well, I'd be surprised if it hasn't been looked at uh, in the corridors at headquarters. Uh, it's one thing uh, that is certainly, you know, looked upon without favour uh, when it comes to uh, talking about referees um, as being cheats. So it is an alleged uh, comment at the moment. I've got no doubt it's been looked at. And, and once we get to post round, uh, you know, we head into tomorrow and Tuesday, if there is something there to be answered to, I've got no doubt we're going to hear a lot more about it. And I I would be surprised, based on the evidence as it appeared during the game, I would be surprised if there's not a please explain uh, that will be forwarded to the Breakers' uh, office. But at the same time, um, you know, you do need to uncover the facts and and see if it was all there. What we do know is the referees are mic'd up. So you would think that if there was a comment like that made, it would have been picked up by the microphones. Okay, so what would you do in the situation? If it proves that it's happened, what would you do? Well, depending on the process and the uh, and the penalties that are in place for that particular competition, um, you know, whether it falls under the jurisdiction of, uh, you know, um, criticism or commentary against a referee, or whether it actually goes a step further, and that is bringing the game into disrepute. And certainly when you're looking at things like comments of that nature to officials, it does actually uh, or can actually fall into the position of bringing the game into disrepute. So uh, it it could be a pretty bad penalty if it's uh, as cut and dried uh, as a a straight-out comment and accusation against an official. Again, you know, we've got to let the process take its place and uh, see what the evidence is. And we do have to maintain the integrity of the referees, whether fans or or coaches or players think otherwise. They are put in a position that's, you know, invidious at some times, but we must protect the integrity of the game. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And look, players and coaches know that more than, more than anyone. So it is alleged at the moment. Um, we'll wait and see, you know, what the evidence uh, suggests mm. and what is presented and see if it goes another step. But... You know, certainly if, if the evidence is strong uh, and that is what is tabled by the league, then there's certainly a case to answer, no doubt. It's a tight comp at the moment. You've got the Cairns Taipans sitting in third spot, eight and five, South East Melbourne, nine and six, the Jack Jumpers, seven and six, who were the revelation last season, and the Wildcats at seven and seven. And just sitting there, you know, I mean, you've got, you've got the Adelaide 36ers at six and seven. How many of those teams that I've mentioned, and there are many of them, in fact, five I've mentioned, 
How many are in contention here, genuinely in contention of that pack? Well, I think they're all in contention. You know, what it does come down to is, you know, as you do progress towards the business end of the season, you know, who is genuine and who's not. So, you know, all of those teams are capable on their day. Certainly Perth were having a run of outs and then came to New Zealand and, and beat the informed team. So anything is possible. I think it's about just finding the form and the momentum at the right end of the season. And sort of gets back to what we are talking about just before. If you are, you know, in the inner sanctum of the breakers, they've lost a couple in, the ro- in a row. Don't turn the thing entirely upside down. Just get back to basics, pick it apart, but without going silly, get back to what you do well because they are a very good team. If you look at the competition right now, Sydney's the team to beat. There's no doubt about that. Breakers aren't too far away. I like the way Southeast Melbourne Phoenix go about it as well. When they put the foot on the throat of a team, they really choke them. And that's a good sign of a team that is capable of going all the way. So they're one for me to really watch out for. As someone who has uh, administrated basketball, who loves basketball, is a genuine fan, how much does it encourage you to see that our local NBL is making such an impact and getting players into colleges and the professional teams and then see it also morph into the local ANBL here? Yeah, look, it's been wonderful, especially the last few years. I think on average there's, you know, sort of 18 to 20 Kiwis each year playing in the Australian NBL. Uh, We've regularly had players playing in the Australian Women's League, the WNBL as well. So certainly the Cells NBL and now the new, you know, GJ Gardner-Holmes Toihi competitions have become fantastic launch pads for a number of players coming through the ranks and, you know, stepping as a stepping stone into their career. And I think we're going to see more and more of that happen as we go forward. When you talk collegiate basketball, and don't forget the Cells NBL, every game is live on ESPN through the States as well. So those collegiate coaches are watching the young talent come through the ranks here. Uh, And certainly pre-COVID, there was, what, 150 Kiwi kids playing collegiate basketball throughout the States. It won't be long. Uh, coming out the other side of all the travel bans that we're going to see those numbers get back to being similar to that. And more women than men. More women yeah. than men playing collegiate basketball. Quite amazing. And, and look, let's, and, and you, you can be self You can be very humble here, but you're the guy that made sure that the cells be ESPN during COVID because there was no content got on ESPN. How the hell did you do that? That, that, was the, <laughs> that, that my friend, is one of the great masterstrokes of sports administration to know that the, a local basketball competition yeah. in a, 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 a country of 5 million plus people can be shown live on ESPN. How the hell did you do that? Yeah, quite amazing. It, it probably stems back to the fact that there wasn't a lot going on around the world at the time. And um, the ESPN interest, the, the, the truth behind the story is their ears were pricked up when news came out of New Zealand about the draft. Remember we had the yes, player I draft? Yes, yeah, I do remember it, yeah. It was actually the draft that led to ESPN uh, asking questions about this competition that was taking place in New Zealand. And I think we were only one of three basketball competitions being played anywhere around the world at the time. And in fact, the showdown was the first ever bubble that was presented in sport anywhere around the world. Of course, we know the NBA went into, into Disney, Disney World yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Um, in uh, in Orlando, but here in New Zealand, you know, what was it? Seven teams camped out at Sky City at the time for about seven or eight weeks. That was the first sports bubble in the world, but <laughs> it was what led into that, the draft, that actually 
uh, found its way to the news desk, I suppose, of ESPN. And that's how the deal started. And look, three years now, ESPN, and um, without giving too much away, what I would say is watch this space over the next week or two because you're going to hear more news about ESPN and the Cells NBL for the next two or three years coming up. All right. Nice work, Justin. As always, I appreciate your time. Have a great week ahead. Cheers, mate. I'm uh, heading back out to the streets of sunny, believe it or not, sunny Wellington. <laughs> All right. Go for it. Take care, bud. Sounds a little bit of us, doesn't it, Ben Francis? Just keep on rocking the free world on the sports radio station on a Sunday, doesn't it? But are you? Oh, yeah, totally. Just very <laughs> relaxed. Yeah, very enjoying relaxed. Enjoying life. Totally. I'm surprised you can throw me. Yeah, totes. <laughs> That's probably a bit too old, young for us. 3.55 with Stephen McIver and Ben Francis. Update from the Basin Reserve. The White Ferns against Bangladesh in the opening one day of their series. News the White Ferns chasing 181 for the win. Currently, they are 78 for two. Uh, Susie Bates not out at the moment on 39 off 48 and Maddie Green 12 not out off 23. So they're chasing a very strong total of 181. A couple of early wickets fell including Sophie Devine 21 off 24. Uh, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how that one unfolds at the Basin Reserve but uh, good to know there's still plenty of sport on around the place. Now there was if you've been following boxing and the IBF bantamweight title for women, it's been an incredible social media uh, field day. Ebony Bridges, the Australian, the defending uh, champion, uh, coming out and uh, weighing in in her underwear against uh, Shannon O'Connell. And uh, I think she was... <laughs> uh, Shannon O'Connell came out and said, oh, she's just a skanky stripper. That was the line. Uh, well, guess what? Today in Leeds, uh, it was earlier on this afternoon, about three hours ago, Ebony Bridge defended that title comfortably. Uh, she dropped O'Connell in the third, and she dropped O'Connell, trust me, and TK, it was a TKO in the eighth. So Ebony Bridge defends her IBF bantamweight title for women absolute stunning day of a sport around the place and there's more to come Fred Young and I are going to talk about footy and we're going to hear some reaction too from England leaving the World Cup oh that's a bad giveaway from Walker now Mbappe's on the ball edge of the box outside of the boots cross comes in and Giroud Giroud he tried the the scorpion scorpion kick Griezmann goes backwards to Chouameni who wants to unleash Chuameni, he has unleashed, unleashed blue fury on England. Aurelien Chuameni, the central midfielder for France, has just put them up with a thunderous strike in the 17th minutes. They're now out to the right for Bukayo Saka. He's got Henderson overlapping. Ah, Saka in towards Kane, who can't oh, push Lloris. it past the keeper. Larice makes a save. Cross comes in from Henderson. Back post, Bellingham oh. rises. And Griezmann clears it away. And now it's come back out to Declan Rice. On the ball for a strike. Goes out to the right for Harry Kane who unleashes a strike and a save from Hugo Lloris. He's going to cut it into the top of the box instead then a second touch inside the area out to the left for Teo Hernandez cuts it cross back in and the blasted shot from Mbappe who hit it first time with the laces of his left boot but he was leaning back on the shot. Foden flat corner to the back of the post and the shot comes in and it's a save from Hugo Lloris. That almost matched Aurelien Chouameni's efforts from the first half.
Gets it into the centre circle oh. and now spreads out to Bukayo Saka on the right. Rabiot's had to come across to cover. Saka, oh, no, one, two in the box. Bukayo Saka, has penalty! To be. Has to be. Penalty! Bukayo Saka was journeying into the box. Quick feet, dancing around the French players. And Aurelien Chouameni, the goal scorer, has gone from hero to zero. One captain against the other. Harry Kane readies. Hugo Lloris bouncing around on his line. Kane steps up and blasts it. <laughs> never missing, never in doubt. It has to be Harry. Harry Kane is a master from the spot and this game is all tied up at one all. Here goes France on the oh. other end. Rabio save from Pickford. Out of nowhere. Out of nothing. It was just a loose ball that Rabio pounced on and then put his foot through from a long way out and too far out to score from so it'll be swung in. Henderson brings it in right foot towards the back Harry post. Maguire! Harry Maguire just missed. It was right on his head. He had a free shot at it and it was skinny towards the bottom left corner and bounce just a foot to the left and out for a goal kick. Uh, Luke Shaw, who's skipping past a few. Left foot cross comes in, back post. Oh, Bukayo Saka's just missed. Short pass in towards Rabio, stands it up to the back post. Dembele cuts Dembele it back in, Giroud! Oh, what, what a save. save. What a save from yeah. Jordan Pickford. Secondary cross, cross comes in. That time it's a goal. Oh, that time it's a goal. Olivier Giroud makes no mistake. The cross from the left side, France, onto Olivier Giroud inside the six yards. And he knocks it home from close range. And France retake the lead. Of course and it's a pen. It is a penalty. Of course it's a pen. Of it, course it's a pen. It is a penalty for England. <laughs> Harry Kane waits. The psychology of it all. To make it two all. Kane waits. The world waits. Kane's oh missed it! My God. He's missed it! Oh my god! He's blasted it over the crossbar. Oh he has god. missed his chance. The captain of England has not come through. Marcus Rashford to keep England in the tournament. Rashford oh, hits the top of the net. It's that close. Hits the top of the net. It's over the crossbar. It rattled the net. Good power. And that's it. And that should be it. And France are into the semi-finals. Heartbreak for England. It won't be coming home this time. They'll be going home and France will be marching forwards to play Morocco in the semi-finals. Harry Kane missing a penalty. It would have made the game level at two all. He hit it over the crossbar. And as a result, England missed their chance. And France, the defending champion, the defence is still alive for Le Bleu. At full time from the Albate Stadium, it's England 1, France 2. So there you go. England can't do it again. Harry Kane, a hero to villain. I don't think I think it's a little bit harsh. That penalty he scored was his 53rd international goal, equaling Wayne Rooney's national record. And I'm sure at only 29 years of age, I think he's got a lot more goals to score as Harry Kane. But this was his reaction afterwards. Yeah, I think um, on the night we was probably the team that created the, the better chances and um, yeah, had good spells in the game. But as we know, big games come down to, to fine details, fine margins, and, and um, they, they got their, theirs right, and, uh, and we didn't. Did the first penalty affect the second penalty, if you see what I mean, and the way you took it? No, I'm, I'm always someone who prepares for, if I get one penalty in a game, two penalties, so I, I always have a, an idea of what I, I want to do, and yeah, you know, I can't fault my preparation or anything like that, the details, it was just the execution on the on the night, you know, the first one was was great and the second one just didn't quite hit it how I wanted to, so um, that's something I'm going to have to take on the chin and um, it will hurt for sure and 
the whole game will hurt because uh, you know we, we had full belief in, in what we were trying to achieve. But um, yeah, as the captain, I'll, I'll take that. And um, but yeah, I couldn't be proud of the boys. Of all the disappointments and all the highs and lows, is this one of the, the, the toughest, if not the toughest, because th this group had, had performed so well? Yeah, I think whenever that a World Cup is every four years, it's not like we have another opportunity next year. You know, it's a it's a long time to wait. But um, like I said, I'm proud of the boys. We uh, we had a great a great camp, a great World Cup. Um, and like I said, it comes down to, to a small detail that, you know, I'll take responsibility for. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not worried about the team and, and how it's going to affect them. I know we've got um, some great talent and, you know, a Euros in, in a year and a half. So, um, for sure, it'll hurt not just for me, but for everyone involved. Um, but that's football, that's sport. You have to take that on the chin sometimes and, and move forward. And what about Gareth now? He's going to review his future. Do you, do you think he'll stay? That's down to him. You know, we um, we love having him as a manager. I think he's been incredible. Um, you know, when you, when you see where he's taken us from to where we are now, is a uh, it's an amazing leap. And um, you know, I think we all hope he stays. But that's his decision. He'll obviously go away and refute that. Um, but as we know, before we know it, we'll be getting getting ready for Euros. Thank you, Harry, and well done. Harry Kane, yeah, did he rue missing the penalty? Of course he did, but I've been whipping around just some of the websites, English websites, and there's not a lot of negativity in it, which is probably somewhat of a surprise because and I wonder, and I just wonder out loud, whether that had something to do with the way they played and the, the, the difference, the style of way they play was quite an attacking, sort of enjoyable England team to watch. Anywho, they're not going to be there. Will Gareth Southgate be there next time? Who knows, but this is his reaction after the match. Well, I think the performance did. Of course, in the end, um, goals goals are decisive, and um, but, uh, but I've just said to the players in there I, I don't think they could have given any more I think they've played really well against the top team there's fine margins and things at both ends that have ended up deciding the game but um, I, I think the way they've progressed as a group throughout this tournament has been fantastic On a night when you got two penalties what did you think of the referee's overall performance? Uh, it's, it's pointless me going into that you know he's uh, I'd rather talk about our players and congratulations to France. Um, you know, they know they've been in a in a hell of a game, um, and we've given a top team a, a, a game that. Yeah, I, I don't think we. Uh, I don't. I really don't think we could have done any more. One defining image, of course, will be the, the miss by Harry Kane. What what went missing at that moment for him? Ah, oh, look, it's uh, for me. We we win and lose as a team, and we, we've let a couple of goals in, and we've missed a few chances. So um, he's been incredible for us, and um, so reliable and in those sorts of situations. We wouldn't be here, but for the number of goals he scored for us. Was it just a bit of ruthlessness that that you were missing this evening? No, I, I think. Uh, just at key moments, you know, you're, you're playing in a high-level game where there are going to be chances created. In, in most of the big moments, we were in the right place. We had more shots on goal. We, we yeah, the goalkeepers made a couple of really good saves for us. Um, but it's a game of fine margins. For you, does it feel like a, a missed chance with this group, though? Yeah, I mean, I think we... we we're here to try to win the tournament and we had belief we could and I think we showed with the performance tonight against the reigning champions that we've got a team that um, could have done that. 
Yeah, but four more years to wait. It seems so painful, doesn't it? But that is what sport is all about. It's 4.14. We'll get some reaction from Freddie Diong, former All White, shortly. 4.19 on a day when England were going home and it wasn't coming home as they lost to France in the quarterfinals of the FIFA World Cup in Qatar 2-1. Gareth Southgate asked, was it fine margins? He said pretty much it was. Fred de Jong from Walmart joins me right now. Freddie, was it fine margins that cost the English? Absolutely. <laughs> you got to, if you give them the penalties, you've got to put them in the net, man. I think uh, every, every team in the quarterfinals other than Morocco, is finding that. Um, two penalty shootouts, England with two penalties, scored one, missed the other, going home. So absolutely fine margins. But, um, yeah, some uh, probably the ever-reliable Harry Kane from the penalty spot um, blows it. But, and it was a game, I think, where England dominated the game with better, with probably the better team. Um, but France find a way to win. Wow, you you've probably been the harshest critic of England so far because I'm, 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 I'm well I'm looking at the uh, the English tabloids and the like and it's not that harsh and I just wondered out loud before the commercial break whether or not it was because England were playing such well an entertaining football. Yeah, I thought I thought England were decent in the tournament, uh, you know, but just the, the the way the draw worked out, there you know it was more than likely. That they would finish top of their group, and then if, you know, go moving through, they were going to hit France uh, in the quarters. And I mean, it was a this was probably the most anticipated of the quarterfinals. This one and the, and the Dutch one, I think. Um, but you know, uh, and I, I thought um, France looked a bit flat, and Mbappe did nothing on the day. Um, I thought Giroud was excellent. He could have had three. He could have had a, a second goal, um, but the header he scored really good. Mm. You know, good strikers header got in front of his defender, puts the ball away. Um, but, yeah, all the talk will be about missing penalties. Um, and, you know, I think England might be a bit dirty. They didn't get a third one um, for the foul in the first half, but probably just outside the box where the initial contact was. But in the end, you got to if, if you get if the ref gives you penalties, you got to put them away, otherwise you're going to lose. Or, or there's the other is the other idea: is you can't rely on penalties. You've actually got to go score goals. You can't think about wanting to get pens, right? Yep. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, and, and you got to score from open play. Um, so, and that's what the French did. Uh, you know, so yeah. The, and, and I think looking at the the rest of the draw, it's going to be some performance to knock France over and stop them going back to back which is, you know, first time since Brazil in the 60s. All right. Well, let's talk about that in just a moment. Just quickly, Gareth Southgate, does he still have a future with English football? Uh, I think he'll go. I think uh, the English, you know, when you look at the quality of the English players, um, they're all playing in the in the Premier League, you know, which is arguably the best competition in the world. No other team has that. Um, you know, the, there's a, if, other teams have, like the French, there's a bunch of players playing in France, obviously, which is not as competitive as the English Premier League. So I think he's got good cattle. Um, and they've been, they were poor leading into the tournament, had a reasonable tournament. And then, um, but I, I, I do think he's going to go. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about your team. Argentina against the Netherlands, you know. So I love how you laugh because you're my favourite Dutchman, and I can I can throw some stuff at you, but I won't. Two all at full time, four three on. Oh, hello, penalties. What, so do we talk about the Dutch or do we talk about Messi and Argentina? Uh, I mean the 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 first goal that uh, Argentina scored from Molina and the pass from Messi 
Mm. That, I mean, that is, that's unreal pass. That is, you know, you're going, how, he's not even looking. When you see there's one angle from behind the goal where you watch him and he's not even looking for the pass. He just knows the guy's there and threads it through, you know, goes through, fortuitously goes through Aka's legs. But, you know, I mean, that's a part, that's, 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 that's an amazing pass. And not many players in the world can do that. And um, so you've got to give, give credit where it's due. But I, I sat in the stadium in Nuremberg in 2006 and there were 18, 16 yellow cards, four red, as Holland played Germany. Uh, Holland played Portugal, sorry. The Battle of Nuremberg. And this was the same. <laughs> 18 yellow cards, a red card after the game, spiteful, fouling. Um, how does Messi not get a yellow card for intentional handball? And then he gets a second, then he gets another yellow later for, for protesting. I mean, there's just the referee just lost control of the game. Absolutely. And both sides are saying the referee was garbage for us. So it was, you know, it was one, another one of those games. But um, I thought the Dutch did amazingly well to come back. And then they just took their foot off the pedal. They scored in the last second of the game from a, you know, from a free kick. That was, you know, like the, the, to have the, the sort of confidence to play that free kick at that moment in the game. I thought, you know, we, we, me and my brothers were talking about it and they were saying it's the same as the All Blacks pulling out that, that line-out move in the, in the World Cup final, um, you know, where Tony Woodcock goes over the line and for, the, for the match-winning try. Wow. You know, it's, that sort of, it's that sort of moment, you know, and it's like to do that at that moment, I thought, amazing, and they had all the momentum, Argentina on the back foot saying we've blown it, and then they take their foot off the accelerator. And it's like, and they let Argentina back in the game. So... Yeah, and then penalties. The Dutch are, are terrible at penalties. They've lost their five out of the last six. They don't go to penalties, guys. <laughs> and there was a De Jong playing. He was a bit, he was a he was a tough rooster too. He, a couple of De Jongs at the end. A couple of De Jongs lurking. Here's something weird that I just noticed because, funnily enough, while we're talking about the replays on the telly and the and you know champions wear 23. Michael Jordan wore 23. So did the goalkeeper for Argentina. Just Martinez, yeah, he's, he's a man. He was so, so much spite in that game, though. Like, uh, well, De Jong was ahead of it. That El like... De Jong was in the front of it all. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. So, you, uh, you weren't a you weren't a grubby player. You weren't a you weren't a b- b- ballsy, pushy player, were you? I can't remember you being. I was too, I was too slow to be like that. <laughs> uh, no comment. Uh, Brazil surprised. Very, very, um, but impressed by Croatia. I thought um, the the thing about Croatia is they 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 play defensively, but they have the ability to keep the ball in their own half. So they're playing like eight v four against the opposition. It's a different type of defending. Um, when you look at Morocco, and we'll probably touch on that in a sec. But Morocco, they defend normally. You know, they all sit back and and they're trying to hit on the counter. Um, whereas Croatia are slightly different. They you know they had fifty percent of the ball in that game. Morocco had twenty five percent in their game. So Croatia are happy with the ball, but they play in their own half. And then at the right moment, they'll just spring forward when the opposition are, are sort of short-numbered. And I think that's what Brazil um, ended up doing. And, and, you know, I think when Brazil look back at that game, they'll go, why did we send so many players forward? We're in deep into extra time, 117th minute, we're 1-0 up, and we've got seven players forward and three at the back. And they got caught out on the counter and they allowed Croatia to take it to penalties and, and eventually obviously lost. Um, so I think tactically pretty naive from the Brazilians. 
lulled into that false sense of security looking at all the Croatians yeah. sitting back, right? But but now, I mean, at least they can dance their way all the way home. <laughs> Do you think Neymar does another one? Do you think he goes again? Uh, I'd be surprised, actually. I think uh, we're signing off a few players. Uh, Messi, you know, from this World Cup, Messi, Ronaldo, Neymar, probably, um, are the biggest biggest names that are probably, probably, I don't think we'll see back again. Are we calling a France-Argentina final before we talk about Morocco? Uh, no, I think I think it's a repeat of the last one. I think it's France-Croatia. Wow, I can't... Um, some, wow. Somewhat disappointing, but oh, no. I think... I think uh, you know, uh, I well, think uh, it hasn't Croatia happened yet, defend. Fred. It hasn't happened yet, Fred. <laughs> You've already called and said it's somewhat disappointing. Ha- hang on a moment. Morocco's there right now. They're they're going up against it. But I love the coach's idea about you know it's it's good to dream and they've they've dreamed they've they've taken out some big names: Spain, Portugal. Now France will for them potentially be another name. First African team to qualify for the World Cup semis in eighty eight years after forty eight goes at it. Do you? Do you give them any shout against France? Well, obviously not, but give, give, give me Absol- some. No, no, give absolutely. me something. No, no, I think absolutely they haven't. They've conceded since this um, since this coach has come in, which was five months before the World Cup. They've conceded one goal, and that was an own goal. So, and I mean, defence wins statistic, championships, Freddie. As a statistic, that's a phenomenal, phenomenal um, statistic. And so, of course, you've got you know you've got to you give them a chance. Um, it's a slim chance, but it's a chance nonetheless. And and you know, France are gonna they're gonna have to show more than they showed um, today against England. Even though even though yes they did score two goals, but defensively I think Morocco are stronger as as a collective unit, uh, 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 stronger than the English because the English were also trying to play as well, go toe to toe with France, and that made it a better game. I think this is going to be, you know, France will have eighty percent of the ball. It'll be the ball. The game will be camped in the Moroccan half, um, but Morocco will have a, will have chances. They had nine shots. They had nine shots in the game today against Portugal. Portugal had twelve. You know, so it's um, it's going to be yeah. It'll be a very one sided game, but Morocco do have a shot. There is strength in the collective, Freddie. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, but and 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 it's. I mean, it is lovely, you know, unbelievably good that we see uh, uh, an African team go this far. Yeah. You know, oh. Because it's, it's so nice to see, you know, fresh fresh teams in, in, at this stage of, of World Cups. And I think that's, um, that's wonderful for the tournament. And it also gives, you know, gives other countries in the world hope as far as, boy, we can go this far. We can compete. You know, and um, and I think that's really, really good for football. Yeah, I was just thinking about that when, when we talk about... Um the World Cup, as said, there was all sorts of drama and you know controversy leading to this tournament about Qatar itself and how the stadiums were built. But in the end, sport has just gone and gone. It's produced what I would consider a pretty entertaining tournament. Oh, very good, very, very, very good. It's um, I think the group stages were great. The and the last games in the group stage were were unbelievable. Where you've got you know Spain and Germany going out at one point in their, in their last games. Um, to Costa Rica and Japan, you know, that was the, the the jumping around of the scoring um, in those in those last stages of the group stage was just incredible, mm. uh, and I think that's you know the, that's why FIFA now are looking at it and going oh we have to change 
planning for the next World Cup in 2026 in the US and Canada and Mexico. You know, they were they were thinking of having three three team groups, 16 three team groups as they go to 48 teams. But yeah, you know, that'll be re, they'll change that and it'll be 14 groups because you can't not have this drama because that has made this World Cup. 14 groups of 48, man. Is that too much? Or do you like that idea? Oh, way, oh, way too much. No, way too much. Way, way, way. Whoever thought, I mean, this is Infantino because he wants to make it bigger and supposedly better. It's, uh, 32 is the perfect number for the World Cup. It gives, it gives enough, team, enough teams of quality um, the ability to get to the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, 48 teams di- will dilute it. You're going to get some pretty poor games um, in in the next World Cup because there's some pretty there'll be some pretty weak teams there, um, and and yeah, the the format for 32 teams is perfect. It's absolutely perfect. You know, eight groups of four, and it just drops down into 16, eight, four, two, and you got the final. So yeah, I, I just it's just ludicrous. But it's all that's all about money. Fantino want the FIFA have one tournament that they sell, and that's the World Cup, and so they're trying to make it as big as, and bigger and as big as possible. Okay, one final thought. OFC are talking about a professional ten-team league in 2025. Uh, are there enough, you know, from the OFC region? What do you make of this? Uh, Devil will be in the detail, and especially on the money that's available, because. I'm not sure that there's, um, you know, that the island teams is going to be the money to to attract the the, the players to go professional. Um, so I think you got to say what what's the format going to be? Um, where's the funding coming from? How sustainable is it? Um, and is it actually and from a New Zealand purely from a New Zealand perspective, is it actually better um, for New Zealand um, to have one another one more professional and where does that sit with the phoenix and all that because new zealand's position or situation in the pacific is completely different to all the islands of course so we've already got one professional team and the the reason the phoenix can be in the a-league and play in a different confederation is because there's no professional league in new zealand if that changes does that mean the phoenix's position in the a-league is in jeopardy from fifa so there's a lot of detail to be worked out so you've got to find you've got to hear all that detail before you can turn around and go yeah I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that or I'm not be nice to see the Phoenix score some more wins eh one for you know one win four draws yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean it was disappointing that they can you know the that they can obviously conceded but I thought in the end result probably a fair result for the team for that game um, you know I thought uh, West Sydney were Second half, they were by far the better side, and you know I think you can't uh, you can't deny them that goal. Freddie, as always, thanks for your time. Go put your money on the France Croatia final. <laughs> All good, mate. Now the Holland are gone. Well, ah, yeah. Who cares, right? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Freddie. It's four thirty-four. Fred Young, former one, giving us his thoughts on the FIFA World Cup. He's predicting France Croatia in the final. Joining us on SENZ today is Glenn Ashby, pilot for Horonuku, who are attempting to set a new wind-powered world record, which was set back in 2009. It was 202.9 kilometres an hour. 
the other day they put down 200 clicks on the pilot is Glenn Ashby. Glenn, I saw the footage. Uh, looked like a wild ride. <laughs> yeah, look, it's a, it's a definitely an exciting ride. That that's for sure, and particularly when you've got no no engine or uh, or motor sort of pushing you along it's uh, it's pretty incredible just to be powered by the wind and be doing those speeds it's been a long long wait particularly at lake gardner which had water on it when you finally got onto the salt to have a good crack and see what hotanuku could do what was that feeling like in the pilot seat yeah look it's definitely been a long wait we've had a sort of pretty unprecedented uh, rain year over here in Australia so to actually get out there on a dry surface and you know sort of get in the craft and, and get rolling and then you know with not a huge amount of breeze really just sort of around the 20 knot mark to be yeah clocking over uh, 200 kilometres an hour was, was absolutely unbelievable the um, the surface is pretty smooth and, and really grippy at the moment so um, had about a sort of 9 kilometre um, stretch that we could you know really use and, and stretch the legs of Horonuku and it's um it was incredible really really good feeling what was the wind speed when you clocked 200 yeah we think it was roughly around 20 knots possibly 21 knots of of, of breeze so not very windy like we were really setting up for sort of um high 20s maybe even into the 30s to to really sort of have a, a really good crack at this record so um very positive signs to sort of be in the craft and actually you know seeing the speedo ticking up and you know hanging <laughs> on to the thing it's um it's pretty it was pretty cool so yeah looking forward to some big breeze to really see what it can do and i'm sure the craft will do more than what i can do that's for sure is it a case of hanging on uh, there's a bit of hanging on, but um, look, it's, I've spent a lot of time sort of thinking about it and a lot of time on the simulator. And when you think about it so much and some of the practice runs that you have done previously in lighter wind, you know, you're definitely using all the sailing skills and all the driving skills um, that you've, you, you know, you've built on over the years all coming together. The, the craft really slides around a lot. And, you know, you, when you're sort of doing, you know, around 200 kilometres an hour, the the wing, you know, you're actually flying the wing through the air. So a small angle of attack adjustment on the wing sail really makes a big difference in power. So it's um, it, it certainly comes alive, you know, when you're, when you're getting going. We're, we're two and a half tonnes and it's um, dancing around like a go-kart. So it's, uh, it's a good ride, that's for sure. Yeah, I was looking at, now, the... the part out to the side are you calling that the pontoon what are you calling the part where where the wheel is for your balance on, on the deck yeah that's our um pod wheel or a pod ballast um yeah. that we we call and that's basically on an eight meter long carbon fiber arm effectively and that's sort of like a, a keel of a yacht that sort of stops you rolling over and we use that to counteract the the side force that the wing is producing using uh, using the the wind force so I was looking at that at 200 clicks and it was just sort of bouncing up off air. I mean, how delicate do the adjustments have to be? Because, and I'm not trying to be a, a, a naysayer here, but if, if that thing lifts off, you're in a, a pile of doo-doo, right? <laughs> if you keep uh, if you keep flying it around uh, higher and higher, eventually you'll, you'll capsize. But um, the idea is basically to fly that pod, you know, just off the off the ground or have it just on the ground, oh. so almost sort of neutral. So that's what we're trying to do. That that pod weighs um, just under nine hundred kilograms, and so we can actually ballast it up 
um, more over a ton or we can take a little bit out. So the other day in our test, we were around uh, 870 kilograms and that load, when that pod load comes off the ground, it all transfers that weight into the into the sort of mostly into the rear wheels of the craft, which helps with the grip. So, um, yeah, all up, you know, those rear wheels are really doing a huge amount of work to stop you sliding sideways and the pod is basically counteracting the, the, the side force from the wing. So it's um, a lot of weight on a big long arm that sees a lot of load and you've definitely got to manage those uh, trimming uh, aspects and steering aspects very accurately and also you know, getting the balance of the craft set up right with you know the loading fore and aft and sideways is, is really key. It's like flying an aeroplane and, and sailing uh, all at the same time. Is Horonuku taking this wind-powered record to a new level design-wise and theory-wise? Yeah, look, absolutely. It's um, It's been a, a huge evolutionary process, you know, over the last sort of, you know, 800,000 years of wind-powered crafts. They've been around for a very, very long time and each generation or each iteration exactly the same as, as what happens with the America's Cup sees improvements and developments and, and stepping forward in performance and technology. So we've definitely, you know, stepped forward um, with the performance and the technology from where things were sort of 15, 20, 30 years ago and we're hoping that the those developments um, and the, 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 the lot of work that the team has put into designing and developing the craft, we're hoping that'll give us, um, you know, a great opportunity if Mother Nature provides us the gift um we're hoping that that'll stand us in good stead to get some really top speeds and hopefully break the record how difficult is the salt on the gear and 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 sailing on it yeah look it's extremely harsh out here um in the south australian outback it's it's the salt is about seven times more corrosive than than normal sort of sea salt or salty water that you'd see in the ocean so it's really hard on the gear um you know hard on the vehicles but we spend a huge amount of time cleaning and servicing you know after every every run after every day you know everything gets a full strip down and um, and clean so it's a big part of the program and certainly something that um you know we probably underestimated a little bit at the start of the program how much time would be taken in servicing and cleaning the parts but to be able to be here on such an expansive flat surface um, is absolutely incredible. It's one of nature's gifts um, for this sort of attempt, and um, you know it's it's a it's a brilliant surface to be on, and it's almost like you're in a, on another planet when you're out there. So it's, we're very lucky to be here. I get the feeling you're, you're downplaying the fact that you can break this record. I mean, you know you can uh, handle higher winds, and you've already done two hundred. In all honesty. If you get the perfect conditions or get up around 25, 26, 27 knots, how fast can Horonuku go? Let's be blunt. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm really hoping that we'll be able to push up, you know, sort of close to 250 kilometres now. The, oh, the craft itself God, really? was really? <laughs> the craft itself has been sort of engineered and, and designed to to do, you know, 250 kilometres an hour. So that was sort of the bar that we set, you know, 18 months, two years ago, you know, when I was sort of first thinking about this project and, you know, you have to set a bar. Sometimes you have to, you know, aim for the stars if you want to hit the moon. So um, certainly I'm very, very comfortable in the design and engineering of the craft. The guys have done a brilliant job. We've, we've all worked together in sort of working out where we need to be and that, that balance of sort of, you know, customer versus, um, you know, supplier is is a very strong aspect of, of Emirates Team New Zealand. And so with the, um, you know, the project moving forward, 
um, you know, we've done our testing at, at Fanuapai. We've got out here. We've done our testing on the lake, albeit in slightly wetter conditions most of the time than we'd like. But now that it is drying out, um, which it probably should have done a few months ago, um, you know, we are getting to the stage now where we can push the craft into where we sort of hope it will get to. And really, at the end of the day, the wind is our engine and our fuel. And, and the more wind that we have means the more, you know, fuel that you can put into the into the craft and um, if you get your your fuel air mixture right you're um, you know you're in good shape and you can develop a lot of power so that's what we need we need a lot of wind and um, I have to be brave enough to <laughs> hang on to the steering wheel and, and just send it. <laughs> Are any of the things that you are learning and discovering with Horonuku transferable to America's Cup 37? Look, there's certainly aspects that are. Um, I could go into great detail with some of those that are, but um, look, it's definitely been a really interesting project for the, for the whole team and some of the, the companies that we've been able to deal with, um, some of the people we've met, um, a lot of different people that we've actually spoken to that you might not normally um, talk to, you know, mm. in, a, in just a sailing environment has been extremely interesting. So it's definitely opened up a lot of opportunities that you may not have actually got to experience if you had have gone down the more traditional path so it's definitely taken the blinkers off and um, I think it's been a fantastic thing for the wider team and the country. Do you see yourself as an innovator? Ah, uh, look, I hope to sort of think that I would be a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the more I, I get into these uh, type of projects, the more I actually really love the challenge and realise that, you know, there's so much on the table to offer and it really, you know, expanding your mind and expanding, you know, the challenges and looking outside the square t- sometimes, you know, gives you more clarity on the things that you, you're focused on normally. So I feel uh, very privileged to have this opportunity and, um, you know, really, really fantastic support of, of, of you know of Grant Dalton um, the wider team is uh, is really lovely to have that backing behind you and um, you know we've we've been through some highs and lows over the years all together and hopefully um, this will be more another high for the team. <laughs> does mo- does Mother Nature say you break the record before Christmas? We will find out uh, soon enough. Um, it's totally up to Mother Nature whether we break this record or not. It's um, there's no other reason why we can't. I don't think the craft. I think is very very capable, and it's um, you know just the other day I, I was very relieved that you know the craft performed how it did in um, less wind than I probably thought we needed to get those numbers. So if we can get a, a, a decent blow, um, yeah, I think I'll hopefully scare myself. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say you're a brave man, Glenn Ashby, but really exciting times. Thanks for giving us your time. Uh, hang on and bring the record home buddy thanks very much cheers not a bad idea that's time to wrap up this Sunday afternoon with Stephen McIver and Ben Francis with a bit of good news well Sophie uh, Sophie, should I say Susie Bates and Maddie Green put the pedal to the metal and they have uh, beaten Bangladesh in the first one day at the Basin Reserve today they were set uh, 181 to win after Bangladesh won the toss and elected to bat. That was a healthy score too. 180 for eight is what uh, the Bangladesh women put out. And, and New Zealand lost a couple of early wickets, but boom, blink and you'll miss it. Susie Bates, 93 off 91 balls. Maddie Green, 59 runs off 70 balls. And New Zealand, 181 for two and win by eight wickets. Uh, that's what I call Ben Francis getting the job done. Absolutely sensational. Oh, you've thrown out a sensational today. How about that? It's been a good afternoon, mate. I've thoroughly enjoyed this afternoon with you. Uh, we've heard some interesting things, uh, but just reminding people that Fred Dion from Orway is picking France-Croatia in the final. 
not a bad shout, but I'd like to see France-Argentina. I think that has delectable written all over it, don't you? What about Argentina-Morocco? Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, I, I think you also want an underdog, but you don't want an underdog that's going to go and get hammered. But as he said, only one goal conceded. That's and that was an own goal, so they actually haven't really conceded a goal out of mistake. And my, they and they got a new was. coach five months out from the World yeah, Cup. So, so New Zealand good. rugby, just down the hall. <laughs> oh, you can see this happening, right? You can <laughs> see this totally happening. What's going on? All right, with New Zealand rugby. Hey. Uh, Let's just quick reminder, tomorrow night you're going to talk to Barry Hearn, the godfather of darts and probably the godfather of British boxing too. Yeah, really looking forward to it on at the Oki tomorrow night at quarter past 10 as part of our big world champs preview, which start on Friday morning New Zealand time. At the Alley Pally. At the Alley Pally and Ben Robb, our own Kiwi, up in the very first game. Oh, wow. And you, I, I, know, I know you will be glued to it, man. As always, Ben Francis, a pleasure doing business with you and having a bit of fun. That's us done. Uh, ben and I will be back on the 22nd and 23rd of December uh, to lighten your mood and bring you all things sport. I'm Stephen McCarver. Until next time, take it easy.